Before we begin this episode, please note that we recorded it a couple of weeks before the news about the collapse of FTX. The Philanthropic Foundation connected to FTX was a major funder of projects related to effective altruism, and we received a regrant from them earlier this year. Needless to say, we are deeply saddened by the huge amounts of harm that this will cause, especially to FTX customers. And though the picture of what happened is still incomplete, we unequivocally condemn any immoral or illegal actions that may have occurred. Finn and I plan to address this issue in a self-contained episode because we really think it deserves a separate discussion. With that said, I hope that the episode that you're about to hear is still relevant and valuable. Again, you won't hear about FTX for the rest of the interview because we recorded it before the news came out. And sorry to Doey that such a fantastic interview had to be interrupted by this section. Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. A tagline for our podcast has been that we showcase new thinking in effective altruism. And as a result, we have talked to many researchers and academics about ideas that they think are important and impactful. However, research is really just one part of the equation. Uh, Doing good also involves building things, launching new organizations and tinkering with projects. So Finn and I have thought that it is high time to bring someone on the show to talk about all of that. In this episode, uh, we do just that and speak to Dewey Irwin, who is the co-founder of Blue Dot Impact. Uh, Blue Dot Impact is an organization that runs cohort-based courses on topics like AI safety, alternative proteins, and biological risks. Before that, Dewey has also been involved in setting up the Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative and running the Effective Altruism Cambridge Group. I think that Dewey makes for such a great guest on this topic because he has this ability to make very daunting concepts like entrepreneurship, leadership, and strategic management just feel very approachable. And I hope that there is some useful advice here for other people who are looking to set up their own organizations, whether they be early career or otherwise. Although a fair warning that a lot of the latter half of this conversation is specifically aimed at the effective altruism community. Dewey is also just very funny and has a lot of great stories to tell, including vans, uh, cheese toasties, and skipping exam revision to dig ponds instead. To give a quick overview, uh, in this episode, we talk about setting up Blue Dot Impact and scaling pilot programs, talent gaps in the EA community and strategic goal setting, uh, career advice and improving leadership skills. We think that there is just a lot more to talk about when it comes to building organizations. So if you know of anyone else who you think would make a great guest on this topic, then please do send us an email. Uh, As always, there are chapter marks to help you guide through the interview. Uh, But without further ado, here's the episode. I am Dewey. I'm from North Wales in the UK. And uh, I'm currently co-founding a new organization called Blue Dots Impact. And we are focused on helping people accelerate careers that uh, solve the world's biggest problems. And we're doing this via educational and community-based programs that are online uh, for specific problems. Dewey, can you tell us about a problem that you're currently stuck on? Uh, One of the things that I am stuck on at the moment is how to develop a good morning routine. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, over the past five, six years, I've been like experimenting with many different options from like waking up at 5am to having, and like trying to have like a super structured process. And this was a disaster lasted for a month. Um, (laughs) And then uh, to having no routine. And this also led to uh, me not starting things very uh, promptly and trying to get now into a routine of like getting up at 8am every morning and going through the motions. But uh, still fairly chaotic. And okay. I have to rely on like five different alarms to get myself out. Are there any particular habits that you've you've picked up along the way mm. that seem to work? Uh, good habits or bad habits? <laughs> Let's go for good habits. <laughs> good habits. I think one is not snoozing. Um, mm. I think snoozing is, is fairly uh, uh, just not an optimal thing to do in the morning. Um, 
And the, the way that I've done this is I have multiple different alarms in different rooms in the house that go off at different like five minute intervals. And so it really does force me to like get out of bed. Uh, and then I have one alarm that is uh, based on like taking a photo of my coffee machine. And so uh, oh, like a QR code type thing, uh, just like it just uses like image recognition to identify the, 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 the coffee machine. Is this a particular app? Uh, Alarmy. Is the Alarmy. Name of the app. Yeah. It's, All right. it's very good. Um, and so this really forces me to take a photo of the coffee machine. And then it will also ask me to take another photo in two minutes afterwards. Um, so I then can't start the coffee. And then as it's preparing, go back to bed because mm. I'm forced mm. to then uh, go back to the coffee machine. Wow. So, um, uh, and, and I also, this app also forces me to do 10 squats in the morning, which is also very useful for like getting more. Yeah. And you have to like, film yourself or like how does that? So it, the it has no. like, I think it uses the phone's like gyroscope to yeah. identify when I'm like going up and down. Um, and so I assume they've also oh, used okay. like a bunch of ML to like yeah. determine what is the like pattern of someone doing yeah. squats. Um, <laughs> and this is also pretty good. So uh, I'm slowly getting there in terms of just like starting the day. Yeah. Um, but then it's, you know, doing uh, things that I want to be doing, but I'm not doing like meditation and things like this that uh, is, is next up in terms of getting a proper habit. Nice. Some concrete advice there. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, another another thing that I'm stuck on at the moment um, and, and working with my team on trying to um, uh, solve is how to develop good quarterly goals for uh, an organization. Mm. Um, I think I'm personally one of my one of the things that I really enjoy doing is like develop uh, like long term visions, so like five, ten years time. Mm. Uh, like what what would the world look like, um, and like what are we trying to do? Uh, what is the mission, and like get people really hyped about this. Um, and then uh, I think I've like not found it super hard to. Uh, figure out, you know, what should we be doing on like a day, daily basis or a weekly basis. Um, but I have found it quite challenging to determine like the middle ground here uh, in terms of how do we get from this like long term vision to what should we be trying to trying to achieve in the next year mm. and trying mm-hmm. to achieve in the next three months. And how can we make sure that the things that we are doing on a daily basis and a weekly basis is oriented around this like longer term roadmap. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's one of the things I'm I'm stuck on at the moment as well. Yeah, nice. I've noticed this come up as a theme before mm-hmm. where it's quite easy to see the things in front of you over the next few days and just get busy doing them. Yes. And also a lot of EA types, like projecting forwards to the next, mm-hmm. you know, uh, multiple decades yeah. and thinking about what they'd like to see yeah. over those timescales. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the action is in figuring out what that means for the next Six months or the next two years even. Absolutely. Um, and that's a little trickier. It is a lot trickier. Uh, and I think it also requires a lot of prioritization and saying no to things. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the aspects of this that I've found interesting to try and work through is based on you know our long-term five, 10-year vision, what does this imply for like the single most important thing that we need to do mm-hmm. in the next year? And what does this imply for like the single or top two to three most important things that we need to do over the next quarter? Um, and then being really intentional on a daily basis about like, that is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I should not do other things. Yeah, I think there is a balance between trying to explore and do many different projects and uh, and learn lots of information, get lots of uh, info value um, with prioritizing the type of tasks that, you know, combined together, get you to where you need to be in the next three months. Um, And I think it is very easy to uh, fall into the pit hole of uh, doing, you know, 10 different projects uh, and not really putting inertia into any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, sufficient inertia to like do something amazing in the next three months, in the next six months. Um, and so, yeah, getting better at saying no to most things and just like really prioritizing 
the thing that will get me to where you know I need to be or the organization needs to be. One thing that makes me think is that it might be nice to try encouraging more of a culture of uh, kind of celebrating and encouraging people saying no to things, even things that you're kind of suggesting to them. A manager I know has a practice of asking people for one thing that they said no to this week and kind of really like sharing those things and celebrating them. I quite like that. Yes. Yeah, I think that is that is very cool. Um, I think, yeah, a, a culture of doing this would be really nice and being able to, like when, when someone emails me or when I email someone else uh, with a request, uh, it is often very, very uncomfortable to say, sorry, I don't have time for this yeah. or, or more specifically, sorry, this is like, not something I can prioritize for the time being. Mm. Um, uh, and so I will often have, you know, some of these emails that go into my, like, some someday I will do this list. Mm. Um, uh, and they're always, you know, on the back of my mind, causing me just a small amount of stress. It's like, this, <laughs> I know this is something I should do. And this person has asked me to do this thing. Um, and uh, knowing that it is okay for me to say, actually, sorry, this is not something I can prioritize at, at the moment. Um, I hope it goes well regardless uh, would be really nice. And it would be nice for me to know when I ask other people as well that I'm not burdening them with yeah, some task that yeah. they they will also get stressed about. Yeah, also makes me think of, um, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, but Leia Pearson's Say No to Things stamp card. It's kind of like a coffee like loyalty card where you get a stamp <laughs> every time you say no to mm. something. And once you've hit 10, you get an ice cream. I like that a lot. That's very cool. Cool. So I think we've already touched, uh, you know, on some of the themes that we're hoping to explore this episode, right? Clearly a lot is about uh, strategy and operations and, and organization. But um, yeah, I'm curious if, you know, looking back at uh, your own career and some of the things that we'll talk about from uh, Blue Dot Impact to Kerry to EA Cambridge to uh, university group organizing, mm. whether you spot any common themes um, that, you know, you're trying to do uh, with with your work. And obviously not all of this is like planned way in advance, but I'm curious kind of on the like journey of finding out about things and learning about things, whether there are any like, yeah, key themes you'd uh, you'd want to highlight. I think there are, there are a few key themes. I think one of them is related to, to leadership uh, that I'd be keen to dig into. Another is related to uh, trying to think about uh what are the primary blockers in the world to solving specific problems and trying to like relate those things to specific actions that one can do to support students, people early in their career, also people later in their career to, to like help create that world. Yeah, I think this partially is motivated by my experience of finding it very hard personally when I was like motivated to work on, on different problems in, uh, throughout my life finding it hard to identify what does this actually imply for me? Um, how can I, you know, have the biggest impact in solving this thing from uh, when I was a teenager or like early teens thinking about uh, Welsh culture, Welsh language, um, to focusing on climate change, focusing on animal welfare, various other problems that I've been interested in. Um, and realizing that I was not operating with any, within any kind of infrastructure or within any kind of coordinated approach mm. to solve these problems. Um, and I'm realizing how powerful coordination and, and leadership can be in uh, doing something that is like very hard, that is global in scale, uh, that requires, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to to do various things. Um, and uh, yeah, I think many of the problems we're focused on are, you know, by default, neglected by society. Um, and they're not things that are very mainstream. And so there doesn't tend to be large coordination efforts already in place to solve these problems. Um, 
and there aren't you know communities that people can engage with mm-hmm. and so uh trying to think about what would it imp- what would it mean for us to have coordination in supporting more people to w- work directly on solving various problems um and what kind of leadership might that require is something that uh, I felt has been, at least in the back of my mind, a, a big motivating factor over the past few years. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, point. Maybe, you know, it, it kind of sounds obvious when you say it out loud. But yeah, like problems that are neglected tend to not have, you know, coordinated, you know, big institutions and uh, the like kind of around them. And it's like up for people to, to make it themselves. Um, yeah, so let's maybe start with uh, Blue Dot Impact. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like maybe to, to frame that there in this kind of spirit of, you know, spotting problems and then thinking about, um, you know, what's, what's the best way to solve them before, you know, maybe even introducing exactly what, uh, Blue Dot Impact is. Like, what was the problem that, um, you kind of spotted that, that made you want to like do something about it? I think it started, the like inkling started around 2017, 2018, uh, where I, uh, was really, really motivated to try and end factory farming. I was like very concerned about, uh, 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 animal suffering as a as a as a global problem, and had been doing some amount of vegan advocacy, and uh, I thought I was uh, doing a, an okay job at uh, convincing individuals to go vegan or vegetarian, um, and was trying to push for various like institutional changes within my college uh, at Durham University where I studied, um, but I did not see a path from what I was doing to the, the like factory farming is is, is finished you know, is, is, is over as a, a global practice of, of food production. Um, and therefore, I got more interested in alternative proteins as like a potential technological fix that wouldn't require such drastic behavioral changes, um, at least on the side of the consumer. And uh, as I started getting interested in alternative proteins, I found it incredibly hard to uh, evaluate what kind of research might this imply for what I should do during my engineering degree? Mm. So I was thinking about what kind of dissertation or thesis could I do in my fourth year uh, that would be relevant for alternative proteins? Could it be like skilling up in tissue engineering or thinking about bioreactor design or things like this? Um, And I found it really hard to find any resources that uh, highlighted, you know, what are the key problems in this space? Where where are the the different technologies at? who are the people working on it currently? Who could be good supervisors? Um, and also who could be other people in the current, in the situation that I'm currently in, who I can talk to and learn from about like the experiences they've had or people who are like one, two years ahead of, ahead of where I was. Um, and uh, I was quite surprised that this was the case in as much as if alternative proteins are an important p- way to end factory farming, I felt like there should be more support here, uh, for, for, for figuring th- these things out. Um, uh, random tangent. I remember when I was a teenager, I was very surprised by the fact that the Welsh government were not being more intentional about supporting high school students uh, with their careers. So um, uh, I went to a, a fairly like standard comprehensive school in, in Anglesey in North Wales and received effectively zero career advice from, from my school. Um, no support really in terms of uh, figuring out which universities to go to you know, what to do, what skills to develop, et cetera. And I only did engineering because some random nuclear engineer from the local power station came to my school <laughs> and was like, engineering is good if you like maths and science. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and I was like interested in climate change. The whole that seems may- maybe useful. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what, 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 what is the role of a government? Like one role of a government is to think about the future workforce. 
yeah. and like how can you ensure that the workforce of the future in your nation states is able to you know increase the economy improve the well-being of the people in that country in that country um etc and uh, i didn't see this happening very much at all at least it was not affecting me and i thought mm. if this is happening i should be aware of it but i was not um and so yeah my personal experience with alternative proteins this realization as a as a teenager that something that seemed fairly obvious to me that should be happening was not happening at least to my awareness and i i'm not sure it's like really happening now yeah, either mm-hmm. i i've not seen i think i would be even more aware of it if it was happening now and, and I, <laughs> I don't think it is happening at any uh, scale that seems appropriate um and so yeah i think that this like opened up my eyes to hmm if you want to do really, really big, ambitious things that uh, take place over a long time frame of you know many years to, to, to decades, uh, this type of coordination, I think, should be happening, but it's not happening. Mm. Um, uh, and therefore, that might be a, a way for me to, or a thing that I could maybe uh, provide as a service to the world. Yeah, yeah. So if I kind of like summarize the like yeah. problem here that you're, you're trying to tackle, is it kind of like, you know, boils down to just having one, you know, kind of nice centralized curriculum that you know gives people a good way to kind of onboard onto like what is the alternative protein space like what are the bottlenecks what could i like maybe be doing but just having a lot of this like in one place that is accessible um i'm guessing like here in in your case like students rather than you know once you like graduate from university or once you already uh, are working at a company or a non-profit is, is that is that about right yes yeah maybe it would be useful for me to like make the link from this like high level realization to yeah. developing the the curriculum. Um, so yeah, this was the with all proteins that was my uh, that was one of the realizations. Then there was a similar realization with AI safety when I uh, started in 2020 uh, working uh, at Effective Altruism Cambridge, which was a like a student group in Cambridge supporting uh, 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 students and professionals in the city of Cambridge. And uh, there was a an AI safety discussion group and. Uh, came to the realization while talking with various experts that uh, the people who were engaging with this group uh, did not have any like shared context, really. Uh, there were no like structured way of them discussing about this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and many uh, uh, students who seemed really exciting to me and they were really motivated would turn up to these discussions and feel really disempowered and disillusioned mm-hmm. because they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand the jargon uh, and they didn't feel like it was a welcoming, inclusive place for them. And so... Uh, yeah, one of the immediate steps we took was to develop a curriculum um, with an AI safety researcher as an onboarding um, onboarding mechanism into this discussion group was the original intention. Um, and then uh, this would hopefully also, you know, uh, uh, reflecting on my own experience with alternative proteins, uh, help a lot of those problems that I experienced in terms of finding a peer group of similarly motivated people, uh, have a structure for learning about these topics. Um and then, uh, yeah, we very quickly realized, okay, this, the potential of this curriculum and this infrastructure is quite a bit larger than just helping people, helping students yeah. in Cambridge yeah, yeah. to learn about AI safety. And so uh, we then uh, uh, went through a process of uh, testing the curriculum for the AI safety program specifically on uh, with AI safety group leaders. So people in different universities around the world who were leading their own discussion groups. We got them to be the participants in the first round. So there were just 10 uh, students in the first round and got a lot of feedback on the program, um, got their buy-in on the uh, becoming facilitators, and then rescaled it to become a, a much larger global, global program with uh, many hundreds of participants. Um, and yeah, went through a similar process with alternative proteins. Uh, and now I'm going through a similar process uh, with biosecurity. Um, 
and yes, then the, the this then slowly grows into the coordination leadership stuff uh, later. But currently, this is like the the link between these two things hasn't quite been built. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds that there's like yeah a few things going on here at least where one is kind of imparting knowledge uh, onto people. Uh, another is kind of a call to action of like, look how much there still is left to do. And then there's this third thing that I think you also uh, emphasized about just having a social environment and a peer group that works well to discuss some of these things um, with, with with each other as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, the, the uh, intersection of these programs of the uh, learning and and thinking through these problems, critiquing various arguments, uh, engaging with the literature in a structured way, as well as uh, uh, developing relationships with other people who are working on this like weird sounding thing, yeah. um, and who can potentially be collaborators in the future, or who you can uh, you know uh, become friends with, um, uh, and then uh, trying to turn this uh, knowledge that people have developed uh, and the friendships they have gained with other people, specifically in the context of this problem, uh, trying to use that to then. Uh, inspire them to actually take a career action, be it, uh, you know, pursue a career where they can develop relevant skills uh, to work on this problem later, or if they have the relevant skills now, I think they can develop it quite quickly, immediately start working on trying to solve this problem. Yeah, I, I find this, um, yeah, like quite interesting because, hey, I mean, with the big disclaimer that that presumably isn't a like one size um, fits all kind of approach, but there definitely seem to be different forms that you could imagine this kind of like engagement working, right? From like mass online courses to, you know, smaller in-person groups. And this seems to be like somewhere in the middle between these, right? Where if uh, I'm, I'm maybe right in assuming like this stuff like works online as well, mm-hmm. that you're able to like find enough other people who are interested in the same, you know, somewhat niche field and have the same like learning yeah. um, like level as as you do, you know, in terms of like how deeply aware you already are on this. Um, but it still has like some form of engagement that is like different from independent self-study and um, yeah, some more of these like mass online learning courses. Yes. Yeah. I think there's many, many different ways this, uh, this can, can pan out. Uh, there are like examples of small, like niche forums online or like subreddits where yeah. people, you know, have curated a very, a community or like discord channels where people get together and, and talk about things. Uh, and there are, there are MOOCs, the massive online, uh, massively open online courses, um, where you can learn by yourself in a self-paced way. Um, and yet we are trying to bring all these things together into one. And I think the, uh, the relationship between them, I think, is very synergistic. Um, I think a lot of the online communities, uh, they tend to not be super uh, good at accountability to learn and, mm-hmm. and really like dig into the arguments on a different topic. Um, uh, but they are good for, you know, meeting other people who are already at a similar level. But there's no necessarily like onboarding mechanism to get to that level. So I'm curious to just know a bit about how you actually started building these mm-hmm. curriculums. So let's take the example of AGI safety. So you notice that yeah. there's no real clear go-to, you know, reading list or curriculum like that. Yeah. That can make this stuff more inaccessible than it needs to be. Um, so you notice this problem. What next? What? How do you start building this list and building this infrastructure? So uh, this re- realization came in a call uh, with Richard Ngo, who is the, the course designer um, for the AGI safety fundamentals curriculum, specifically the alignment uh, curriculum. Um, and so uh with him uh, or like he was the like i did not really have any role in designing that curriculum mm-hmm. so it was more uh working with him to uh both identify the problem and and come up with like the specification for what should this course be able to achieve what should um uh students who complete this course uh understand about this space um and then he, uh 
running the initial program with the first round of the um, of the AI safety group leaders on a very small scale. Um, and so uh, that was like the first proof of concept of like developing these types of programs. Um, but the actual workflow was not super intentional. Um, I think Richard has put in an amazing amount of work and has done like a really awesome job. It, it is one of the, if not the best, uh, like onboarding mechanism for AI safety. Uh, and that is like all down to, to Richard's work. Um, but one of the things that I've been realizing over the past few months is uh, the way that we've developed these programs hasn't been intentional in terms of the science of learning, the pedagogy um, and things like this. Um, and so that that is like the next stage of for Blue Dot Impact is uh, thinking through, okay, if we actually want to become an organization where we don't just have a few curricula, uh, but we have many, many curricula and we become more similar to some kind of like online university or something like this, uh, what are some workflows that we might want to develop to develop these programs with a specific uh, theory of change and an outcome in mind. Got it. And before we talk about the next iterations, can you say more about those first kind of test runs? So just in practice, you have a, a reading list, presumably, but then also some kind of course built around that with a cohort. But how did that all fit together? I think um, the alternative proteins program, I think, is is fairly uh, a funny example here. Um, and so the way that this one came about was... Um, you know, I had this. I had this prior interest in alternative proteins, and uh, cultivated meat or cellular agriculture specifically. And uh, we'd started developing the AGI safety fundamentals program with Richard. Um, I remember uh, uh, you and I, uh, like, I got your feedback on a global health program uh, oh, that we yeah. started running about a year <laughs> and a half ago. Um, and so that was running as well, and that was like going fairly well. Um, and I was like, well, this structure seems to be pretty good. I think we should uh, add more of these types of programs because, uh, yeah, people seem to value uh, this experience. And so I then spent two weeks uh, building an alternative proteins curriculum, super ad hoc process. Like there was no workflow that I was following. It's just like, well, what do I know? Right. I think these are some themes for alternative proteins. Like I think like plant-based meat, fermentation, cultivated meat, consumer acceptance, regulations, business, I don't know, these seem like rough, like themes for this entire field. And then I just like Googled it um, and, and found like what papers have the most citations, what videos seem really good. And then I just like put them together in a curriculum and then um, uh, reached out to a few uh, like stakeholders, at the Good Food Institutes, um, also reached out to the Cambridge University uh, Cellular Agriculture Society um, and uh, got their feedback. And then we ran the program in the summer of 2021. And uh, all of the facilitators were people who were actively engaging with this field already. Uh, either they were working at uh, companies, uh, working on these technologies, or doing research on it at university. Um, and they then gave a huge amount of feedback <laughs> on the program. So there were, there were like 40 people in the first iteration. And it was like a bit hit and miss in terms of the curriculum um, because it was such an ad hoc process. Um, but then the program has now been... Uh, transferred to Will Saunter, who uh, was one of the co-founders of the of the uh, Cellular Agriculture Society in Cambridge, and who's now uh, co-founding Blue Dot Impact with me. Um, and now we're being much more intentional about uh, reaching out to the prominent experts in these different areas uh, and thinking through what what do we want a new person to this field to know, and um, what are the best resources there. 
I think it's really important to stress, right? That it's like an iterative process and, you know, you can, uh, you know, become more ambitious and more uh, refined as you kind of like go along. But also at the beginning, it sounds like, you know, this ad hoc approach was like still really good and like getting something right and some pilot and that then helps you get, um, yeah, like lessons and uh, buy in that then like also lets you presumably, right, reach out to experts thereafter or something. That's probably like easier once you have like a, at least a pilot or something to show. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think the process of trying lots and lots of different things and being willing to do something that is not perfect at all or that like you feel is not very good um and uh, but being willing to to do this anyway and being like intentional about trying starting really small um but doing it in a way where you get lots of feedback initially uh so there's lots and lots of startup advice that is uh, in this vein of you know try lots of different things get lots of different feedback don't plow you know, all of your resources into building a perfect product before you know if there's any market for that product. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so uh, I think this is one thing I would really stress for people uh, who are, you know, students or early in their career and they're wanting to uh, build something or they think that something uh, different, that there should be something uh, about the world that is different or they think that something should exist in the world that doesn't currently, currently exist. Um, I've been surprised by uh, how much progress you can make on building that thing over the course of a year or two, um, but also how uh, messy the process feels internally um, and how it often feels like, oh, wow, I'm just like making all of this up. Mm. Um, and yes, most people are like making most of these things up, but slowly you start making up fewer things and you get more like when you try things and you do it in a way that uh, you're engaging with stakeholders, you're being honest about where you're currently at. Uh, you have, you know, an ambitious long-term vision, but you're not sure how to get there. Um I think uh, start small, uh, think big, iterate, get lots of feedback, mm. get lots of uh, you know f uh, stakeholder buy-in. Uh, I think this process is, is very powerful. Nice. Yeah. I guess it goes back to the thing you said right at the top about thinking about medium-term plans. So mm. you, you have maybe a clear idea of something in general you want to see in the world, mm. let's say in the next 10 years or so. Um, I guess that shouldn't mean by backchaining that you should be really stubborn about the best way to get that. Maybe the maybe a better approach is to be quite open to iterating and testing and starting quite small and kind of changing your best guess at the, the plan as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the, a lot of the things that we've been doing have been more purely in the iteration, make things up as we go along like mm -hmm. stage. Uh, and now it is like, okay, we've now also got this like long-term vision for given all these learnings and the different things that we've tried, uh, we've now focused on one of them. And we want to like, we've got a long-term vision for that one thing. And now it has built this like middle bit out. Okay, yeah. nice. So I guess to understand why you're focusing on this one thing, which we'll end up talking about, yeah. can you say something about the feedback you initially got? Were there any surprises there? Yeah, one of the things that we have to do with these programs is determine what would make a good cohort. So what would, uh, who, what kind of people or what kind of backgrounds or interests or motivations uh, would be good to put in a cohort together. And for context, uh, our programs uh, operate by having groups of around five people in a cohort together with a facilitator, uh, and they meet up once a week um, to, to talk through various readings and exercises. And uh, we had a lot of mixed feedback on this. In general, people were like fairly uh, happy with with the, the way that we were building these um, cohorts. Um, a lot of the feedback was still pointing in very opposite directions where some people wanted to only be in a cohort 
with other people who had the same background as them. So they could really dive deep on the like specifics of machine learning or the specifics of like how a bioreactor is designed or whatever is relevant to that uh, uh, technical expertise. Um, I think this is especially people in uh, fr from a technical background want to be in a cohort with other technical people. Um, but then there is also a desire for people to be in cohorts with people from totally different backgrounds from around the world. And, you know, the, the, the virtual reality of these programs um, uh, or the virtual nature of these programs mean that you can be in a program with someone, with everyone else in the, co in the cohort is from a different continent um, yeah. uh, and has a totally different uh, life experience to yourself. Um, but also some people might be more interested in the policy aspect of a certain topic. Other might be, others might be in, in a business perspective um, and others might be interested in the, like technical questions of how do we build this thing? Um, and there's a lot of shared learnings that you can get from this, um, but it also means you can get, go less deep uh, mm. on the topic. And so this is a thing we're trying to now experiment with for the future of how can we actually test this, you know, with uh, putting different people in different types of cohorts and, and see how they go and, and what the outcomes are. Um, so I think that, that's been one, one big one. Uh, another is just how do we support the facilitators who are, who are leading these, these different cohorts um, and how much freedom to, to give them in terms of how do they lead the discussions. Um, a lot of the people who are uh, facilitating these discussions are themselves, you know, they're, they're immersed in this community or they've, they've been thinking about these topics for a long time. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have experience teaching or helping yeah. people learn yeah. or, you know, facilitating or leading discussions. And so... Uh, a lot of some of the feedback has been around how do we train and support the facilitators, and uh, how structured do we want to be with uh, the type of lesson plans that they're following, and how they are uh, guiding the discussion uh, and guiding the participants to do different activities and exercises. Um, and I think I'm we're, we're we're leaning more in the direction of being more structured um, uh, and, and and trying to uh, provide more guidance. Um, uh, whereas in the past, it's been a bit of a free-for-all, do whatever you want. Uh, but this can lead to very inconsistent outcomes within different cohorts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm curious to dig a bit more into that question of, you know, what causes variance between uh, cohorts or even like how much variance there is. I mean, definitely reflecting on uh, my own experience and having done some some reading groups and, and fellowships and uh, what have you that, you know, I definitely remember some, you know, groups really hitting it off and just like going really well for seemingly unexpectable uh, reasons and others kind of like withering away after week two or something and then um, yet like people not not showing up or not having the same kind of engagement and discussions um, how much of that right is like you know controllable from the outside or like you know facilitatable from the outside in some way um, versus it being some kind of like random chance from uh, who happens to show up and how people seem to like mesh with each other yes yeah, I think this is one of the key uncertainties we have um, about what, what are the things that lead to uh, a really successful cohort. And one of the challenges that we face is our programs, we're hoping for them to be very scalable. Um, but a, an aspect of being scalable mm. is that you have thousands of applicants um, and you have to, and you, you can't really gather a huge amount of information from them because it's only a small uh, engagement in some ways. It's, you know, uh, uh, one participant might, participant might spend 50 hours or so doing our program over three months. Uh, and so we can't, you know, have a really structured process where we get lots of information from them. We, you know, interview them and things yeah. like this uh, because we have so many applicants and because uh, they're unlikely to want to put that commitment in. Um, and so that's been one challenge in terms of uh, 
making these kind of decisions before the cohort is created, uh, because we are just operating in a quite uh, information sparse um, uh, environment. Um, but yeah, there are there are lots of variants between cohorts. So uh, within our programs, there will be you know high school students. There will also people. There are also people who are later in their career, in their like forties and fifties. And there are people who are researchers, people who are policymakers, people who are venture capitalists, mm. people who are students, um, people who are doing PhDs. And we try to put people roughly uh, uh, with others in the same career level, uh, which I think is is useful for feeling like on the same level as the other participants in in in, in Mon's cohort. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the making sure that when people uh, uh, are you know placed into a specific cohort, they are then really engaged and they're excited to uh, attend this discussion every week um, and and find value in in, in participating in this program uh, is something we're still we're still working on on improving. Well, if data is hard to gather, then what about anecdata? I'm curious if there are just any stories from the last few cohorts that you might want to talk about. Yeah, I think one uh, fun story is uh, we had. Uh, around six or so uh, civil servants from the UK civil service um, participating in our alternative proteins program. And uh, they were thinking about, you know, what, what can the uh, UK governments uh, or UK civil service do to uh, improve the regulations around plant-based meats or encourage uh, this type of uh, product to be consumed? Uh, and what things, if anything, can the UK government do to improve the development, the R&D of cultivated meat and, and things like this? Um and uh, we were fairly intentional about putting them in a cohort together so that they could uh, develop those relationships. And they then continued to have those meetings um, huh. uh, after the program and have become like a, uh, a, nice. a fun little unit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the participants, um, uh, partially as a, as a result of participating in this program uh, and hearing about roles in a career showcase we had at the end, uh, is now working at an alternative protein foundation uh, and thinking about uh, doing research and, and policy research and, and potentially grant making as well uh, within this space. I guess that strikes me as another, you know, uh, benefit that comes with the scaling is that you're then able to create these niches, right? Of like, you have enough UK civil servants apply in order to like create a group with them. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, a challenge we're facing now where we really want to uh, go smaller initially so that we can uh, be more deliberate about improving all of the different systems that we have yeah. um, and really focusing in on each participant's experience going through the program, talking with a lot more of them uh, and ensuring that things are just like really solid. Mm. Um, but doing this is aided by having the large scale because you have more people that you can create, as you mentioned, these niche cohorts. Mm. Um, I, I think this might be a... Uh, a common thing that many people who are trying to set up startups will face, where yeah. there are benefits to being large, there are economies economies of scale that you can that you can get, um, and there are things that you can test that um, are much easier to test when you're doing things on a large scale. But it runs runs the risk of the thing that you do on a large scale is very costly or resource yeah, intensive, yeah. and then it just turns out to be entirely wrong, uh, and you might not actually get much useful information for what to do next. So, uh, yeah, I think what one one uh, potential solution to this is to really think hard about. What are some um, uh, like proxy metrics for uh, the thing that you're trying to test that you can still test on a smaller scale, which isn't quite the right thing? Mm. Um, or what are some ways to uh, get the benefits of going large without actually having to then commit to the large thing? So uh, one, one example here is having an interest form before an application form where you just you know very subtly get a sense of like, is there demand for this thing without committing to 
doing that thing. Mm. Um, and uh, another thing we might do is we might uh, try and get many thousands of applicants to our next round of the, of the different, pro- different programs, but then we might only accept a much smaller percentage. So in the past, we accepted around 60, 70%, whereas in the future, we might accept five or 10%. Right. Um, but to try to, well, in order to go small, but still with the uh, value of being able to create a few of these niches, but much fewer of them, but still creating the, 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 them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, in order such that we can, in the long term, you know, run much larger programs and accept many more people and for all the people who apply to have a much better experience. So right now you are setting up Blue Dot Impact, yep. which I understand to be carrying on this idea of um, fellowships from these kind of earlier cohorts, which were part of EA Cambridge, largely. Yep. First of all, where did the motivation and the idea for this new separate uh, project come from? Yeah, so I uh, started um, at EA Cambridge in, in 2020. And uh, then over, over the two years of, of, of working at EA Cambridge, just like run lots of different experiments. Um, and the programs that we're now running with Blue Dot Impact were one of those experiments. Um, and they were an experiment that felt to me that had a very high upside for uh, potential. Um, but we were also running many other experiments and many other different types of programs. So one of them was thinking really hard about how to uh, leverage the resources of Cambridge uh, to help solve the world's biggest problems, like mm. specifically focusing in on that city and the university infrastructure and the startup ecosystem. Um and another was the Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative uh, that we helped to to, to set up and, and, and run, um, which was more like a 10-week full-time research internship for students uh, early in their career or who are still studying. Um, and uh, around a year ago, so around September, October uh, 2021, um, uh, I started to build a team for uh, you know, building all of these different projects out. Um, and the... Uh, and I, I was excited to try and build some kind of like big organization that was doing all these different things. Um, and then over the course of the past year, I realized that this was a, uh, not a way to build a world-class organization in the long term because we didn't have the requisite focus at the moment. And so this led me to reflect on which things that we've done over the past year uh, might be things that I want to that, that, that are the best fit for me to focus my attention uh, on. Uh, and that also, I think, have, you know, really, really high upside for impact. And I think the one of the areas where uh, I thought this was uh, the, the case the most was the seminar programs. And uh, and so now we have uh, doubled down on this set of Pluto Impact in order to focus explicitly on these online programs, uh, uh, while uh, other members of the team uh, who joined over the past year uh, will be uh, setting up their own projects uh, in separate organizations entirely, where mm. they can also be focused on their goals. Uh, and yeah, so I feel excited basically about the like, uh, we had a, a fairly uh, chaotic process of experimentation. <laughs> and now we have this new fo- new newfound focus on the different organizations. And uh, hopefully, this allows all of those different projects to uh, optimize better for their own uh, projects and their own goals and build a culture, build a team that uh, supports that. Okay, so you are doubling down on this seminar program ideas. I have a bunch of different ideas you're testing out. What is the kind of plan for the next year plus? And in particular, I, I'm 
interested to know how you see this going really well and how you see this working at scale, which is presumably a reason that you're focusing on this. Yeah, the plan uh, at the moment has been building a new team and identifying how can we have uh, people with the right skills, the right motivation, uh, the right uh, excitement about this uh, mission of, of, of developing these types of programs uh, to join the team. And now uh, we're getting into a stage of, of starting to, to, to move on, on running the next rounds of the programs. The like long-term vision that is uh, motivating this is, I, I think, at least in my mind at the moment, this is like definitely not super uh, fleshed out, is something like we are able to onboard and uh, inspire and support you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people every single year to learn and think through relevant topics in, you know, uh, important global problems. And while doing this, developing relationships with other people that help them, help to motivate them to work on these problems. But then being able to do this, not just as like a, uh, here is the foundational knowledge for this topic, but also here is like a really niche mm -hmm. part of this problem yeah. uh, where, because it is quite a niche thing, there are maybe 10 people in the world currently <laughs> working on it. But actually, it would be really good if there was like 500 people in the world working on it. And uh, by default, that just won't happen, really. It's like very hard, I think, to get those ty types of, of, of shifts. And so, yeah, being able to become an organization where uh, we have these detail detailed models about uh, what does the world look like where, for example, pandemics are now like impossible mm -hmm. or where it's like where we're really prepared for um, uh, if, a, if, a, if an outbreak occurs, we know what to do. We have different systems in place for ca catching this and we have really yeah, great yeah. response um, and where, you know, these pathogens hopefully don't emerge in the first place at all. Um, uh, like what does that world look like? And then what kind of um, uh, work re is required to, to build that world? Mm -hmm. And what, what are the organizations that are required for doing that work? What are the people uh, uh, that might be working at those organizations? Uh, what uh, networks do they need to have? What kind of skills do they need to, to have? What kind of resources would be useful for them to read? Um, and trying to put that all together and turning it into like, okay, here are like specific programs now to, to, to support people to uh, coordinate with each other to um, uh, make progress on developing this policy or uh, make progress on setting up a new uh, a company to build this technology or new research lab to do like foundational R&D in this important topic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it's something like a uh, uh, kind of like a university-ish, um, uh, maybe university is the wrong, the wrong term, but it's like a way for people to uh, develop the right relationships, uh, think through various topics, get to the frontier of where a certain topic is at, and then doing this in a way where uh, the orientation is all around, right, now how do we do it? Uh, how do we like actually start doing this type of work? This might not be fully coherent, but I'll pick up on one thing you said there, which sounded really interesting, which is this thought that there may be some proto-fields where there are something like a dozen people in the entire world who can count themselves as experts on that field. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're currently so niche um, is often not <laughs> a decisive reason not to really put a lot of effort into like building out infrastructure and introductions to this field. If you think there's really good reasons for this to be like a thriving field mm. um, in a few years time. And I guess part of the theory of change here can be like bootstrapping a field by just making it legitimate, by like giving it the kind of foundations for other people to get on board. And there's some like chicken and egg problem there if you only try to hop on board the things which are already a thing.
I, I can definitely presumably like sympathize with some of the problems though for those uh, like 12 experts, right? Where you're like, in such a small field <laughs> yeah. and like everything is burning. And then it's a, you know, presumably also like a big ask. Right, like, don't, you know, do direct work, like help grow this field as well and like help spend a lot of like time and engagement, like helping others like come into this as well. Like I'm curious, yeah, like from you reaching out to experts to help, uh, you know, write these curriculums and yeah. develop these curriculums, um, what that balance, if at all, like looks like. Yeah, it's it's definitely a hard balance, um, uh, and I think it's also the case that many people who are working directly on these problems uh, think it's really important to grow the field, but they don't know whose responsibility this is. Yeah, uh, and they know that like maybe they should be doing it, but like the thing they're doing right now is really important, and so uh, they they're like, well, you know, we can start doing this in a year, or like probably someone else will do this, mm. um, and I think often this leads to. Uh, super unclear responsibilities. Uh, and um, I think it's also the case that many people who are working on these problems aren't really thinking about growing the field at all. Mm. Uh, they might not uh, be, like not everyone thinks in the context of, you know, do we need like a thousand people to solve this problem? Uh, they might like, they're working on a sub problem that they think is interesting or really important. Mm. And they're like, yeah, my, my role here is just w work on this thing. Yeah. Um, and so one of the uh, things that um, I see as, as our responsibility is, uh, to talk to people who are working on these, on the like cutting edge of these things, um, and get a sense for uh, what is the frontier uh, of the research here, uh, and also to make it super easy for them to then engage with the the field building uh, aspect of the work, um, and to uh, yeah take a lot of the like burden from them in terms of uh, you know having to do lots of like intensive mentorship for like to support one person. Like if we can get all of the benefits from that type of uh, mentorship but do it at scale that requires like less effort per current research or something, mm. um, uh, then I think that would be really awesome. Um, but it is also the case that many, many researchers really do want to help as well. Um, I think with, with the Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative, I've been um, uh, really pleasantly surprised by how receptive uh, almost all the researchers that we reached out to as potential mentors were to mentor the students. Um, they had a very, very high success rate in terms of people saying, yes, I, I really want to mentor. Uh, and many people who I thought were doing really important work and seemed really busy also wanted to mentor even more people. Mm. Um, and this made me reflect on there just isn't the infrastructure for doing this. Yeah. Um, like they might be working in a specific organization or a specific university where there isn't a clear demand to pursue that type of research. And so in a way, we're also providing like a matching service um, because these the number of people who are working on these areas are so sparse and they're like all over the world. They're not like concentrated in one place. Um, we are trying to like connect all of the different dots um, and, you know, be a, be a platform basically where people can engage and, mm -hmm. and learn and uh, uh, make it clear that like, yeah, I'm really serious about this thing. I'm, you know, a current student, but I really, I'm really motivated to work on this thing. And then the, the researchers can be like, yeah, this person's participating in this program. They're like asking really great questions. Um, you know, they, they've like gotten to the point now where they can like quite easily uh, plug in to my research and become like a research assistant or uh, whatever. I'm curious to hear a bit more about what the kind of like um, off-ramp from, you know, doing these curriculums looks like. So maybe one way to 
to characterize, um, I think what, what you said up until now is that, you know, the, the purpose of, uh, Blue Dot Impact and, and these curriculums is to get people who ha already have some level of engagement, um, with these fields, you know, to the degree that they're, you know, excited about spending at least a few hours each week reading literature, having discussions and the like, um, to then, you know, develop a lot more expertise and knowledge in a peer group. But then presumably after, you know, they're, they're finished with the curriculum, um, what you're ultimately interested in is them, you know, finding a career opportunity or finding a research niche to kind of like slot into. But as we're talking about like building out this infrastructure and this need, it's like presumably not the case that these things are just like readily available. Um, so I'm, I'm curious with, yeah, like how you are thinking about that um, in terms of, you know, not just like running to a cliff at the end of like having done one of these curriculums and then having a lot of like knowledge and passion, but not a clear like uh, way to put it. And yeah, maybe like looking forwards as well with like how you're looking to, to work on that in future. Yeah, I think this is uh, uh, an area of our work where uh, we've started experimenting, but uh, it is like clearly an, like one of the three like key pillars of what we're trying to do. And it's we're definitely very early days. So there, there are two different uh, things that we are currently uh, experimenting with here. Um, so one of them is uh, the capstone projects. So these are um, uh, this is a period of usually around four weeks after the like reading uh, components of our programs, where we encourage uh, participants to uh, do something of their own uh, for you know a few hours per week. Um, uh, for a few weeks, and then uh, the cohort gets back together and talks about what they did. Um, and uh, we've been slowly compiling different project ideas for different types of people uh, mm. that might be suitable for, for them. Um, and uh, and then we also encourage people to uh, come up with their own ideas for things. And we've often found that many people will already have a bunch of ideas. And one of the services that we provide is just empowering them to then do it and provide the accountability and the support where they know if I do this, I can talk to other people about how it's going, who have also like got the same context as I have. Um, and I think this is uh, one like earliest thing that we can do to be like, okay, now it's, you know, we, you've been in this infrastructure, you've been supported, you've developed these relationships, you've learned this stuff, uh, you've thought about these things. Uh, now the button is being handed over to you. Now it's, you've got to now do a thing. Um, yeah. And... Uh, and I think we're like trying to encourage people to, um, uh, you know, take that responsibility with this uh, this period of the of the um, thing. Can you shout out any examples of capstone projects? Yeah, one one fun one with um, uh, in the components of, of field building uh, that I think has been really successful is uh, with our alternative proteins program. We've uh, encouraged uh, students to uh, set up their own like local alt protein groups. Um, and we've seen a pretty big wave of around like 10 plus student groups from around the world being set up uh, by past you know, graduates of this alternative proteins program. Uh, and then uh, the mission that, that we feel excited for them to pursue and that we've um, uh, provided them the like infrastructures to start mm. working on. Is to build their own bioreactors. Build their own bioreactors. So <laughs> um, just like solve cultivated me. Um, is to uh, think about uh, the type of expertise that exists at their institution, at their university, uh, you know, what kind of research, research is, being, is taking place, and then how can they uh, uh, inspire, you know, current uh, PhD students or uh, PIs or mm -hmm. postdocs to think about uh, how they might change the direction of their research to be more focused on, you know, plant-based plant meats or, or, or cultivated meat or whatever. Um, 
And we've started doing this in Cambridge over the past year and a half um, and ha- have got like a, a, a good traction, I think, which I, I feel very excited about. Um, and uh, yeah, I feel uh, really optimistic about these students really like engaging in the research that needs to take place. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, the, the, the student groups are not just talking about alternative proteins and getting other people excited, uh, which I think is, is an important component of, of what they should, what they can do, but really thinking about uh, how can we uh, utilize the, the expertise of this institution to actually make progress on solving these problems. Um, and yeah, I, I, I've just been like really excited about how the Capstone project has been able to empower people to do this and provide them with the belief in themselves that they can do this. Uh, I think it's a very daunting yeah. process to think, oh yes, I'm now going to like set up this new, this new project, this new community, um, uh, that is also trying to like change the research at the university. That sounds insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the mere fact that of us being like, yeah, this can be done. We've, we've tried it elsewhere. We're trying it because somebody else tried it before us and, and it seemed to work there. Um, and this is like a, a shared experience that we're all going through. Um, and, uh, we believe in you. We think you can yeah. do it. I love that. Um, Just slightly yeah. lowering the like activation Absolutely. bar required to do that. Yes. Yeah. Activate, like reducing the activation energy or like getting people past the activation energy is like right, one of the key yeah. com- concepts yeah. for us is like, uh, I think the activation energy for most people is just higher than uh, what is currently like uh, uh, the, the the stages that they're currently going through in terms of learning about these topics. Uh, like reading a book about something doesn't quite get someone to the point where they're like, yep, I'm now going to you know, work on this full time. Um, so some people do get to that. And that's like amazing when 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 those people make those leaps. But I think for most people, they require more, more support, myself included. And so... Uh, yeah, I, I feel really excited about doing this. Yeah, it's definitely something to be said as well for just learning by doing. I mean, also again, like reflecting on, I think my own work, I think I learn a ton more if I have a concrete problem that I'm like trying to solve rather than, um, you know, somewhat passively engaging with just a reading list, which I think is like often really important to get like, as you know, they're framed as well, like fundamental knowledge. Um, but a lot of, you know, expertise or a lot of uh, contextualized knowledge comes actually with engaging with a concrete problem. Absolutely. And also at least in my own case, forcing myself to realize what I don't in fact understand. But yeah. I think I feel like I understand. Yeah, that's yes. very true. Yeah, I think there's a, a huge amount that um, the like field of the science of learning has to offer that has not permeated society at all, yeah. um, which I, I feel continuously perplexed by yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. why this doesn't permit. Because there's so many things around, you know, uh, yeah. making sure you understand something by explaining it to another person mm-hmm. or, you know, really thinking, okay, I've learned this principle. How can I then apply this principle or like come up with like 10 different examples of this principle in order to really make sure I understand the thing. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to, you know, read something and, you know, yeah, the, the, like your eyes have picked up all the words. Uh, but like, then if you, if you closed your laptop and try and actually repeat what is in the article, I think a lot of people will not actually be able to do this. So I think a lot of the, the role that our discussion groups, I hope, will play is by uh, supporting people to, you know, think through the information that they have uh, reflected on as they've read through various content um, and uh, provide both accountability to, to do that reading beforehand, but then think through, okay, what does this imply? Uh, what are some of the, like, strongest arguments here? Um, uh, what are some other examples of this idea that might be relevant or that might point out that this is wrong? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think... Um, this feels like the type of structure I would also be excited for, like all the universities yeah. to do more of. So given that yeah. the ceiling on how good education can be mm. is presumably a lot higher than just yes. the standard, 
significantly higher universities what is going on and it's what what kind of story explains why um just average typical teaching methods and approaches aren't close to the kind of cutting edge of what we currently understand about teaching Yeah, I have many hot takes here. So I, I would definitely emphasize these are like, this is not my field of expertise and these will be my <laughs> hot takes, but um, I do have many hot takes. Uh, and, and also for context, I, uh, during high school, I found, uh, yeah, d- didn't like find this to be, to be useful and basically stopped going to high school when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during university, I went to maybe like 5% of my lectures. And because I found them to be so useless, basically. Yeah, I, I, I think I learned more on the walk to my lectures because I could listen to a podcast at double yes, speed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, which is insane, right? But um, <laughs> So uh, some of my hypotheses for why this is. So um, one is that uh, universities are trying to be two very different things at the same time. And there are like fairly large tensions between these two things. One is to uh, be a place where people who are, you know, in the, between 18 and 22 years old can come to learn about different topics and, and, and get up to speed. And then another is to be, you know, a research center where, mm-hmm. where the professors are the best researchers in the world on that topic or as, 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 as like good as possible. And they're like really focused on that. And so um, the professors then have this tension where the university wants them to be focusing on their research. And, and the professors usually have gone into academia because they want to research, not yeah. because they want to teach. Um, and so I think this nudges universities towards thinking, what is the cheapest way that we can teach? Mm-hmm. Um, but the cheapest way to teach is not the best, not, does not lead to the best learning. Um, and so, you know, lectures are a, a really, really efficient way to transmit information from the lecturer to the students but it is not a very effective way for that information to then be processed and acquired by the students mm-hmm. and for them to then be able to apply that information in various different contexts. Whereas the, like, the, the mode of operation where uh, students do have a more engaging learning experience does require a lot more intensive learning experiences. It requires, um, you know, ideally you would learn all the stuff in your own time, you know, via videos of lectures, uh, via podcasts, etc., And then uh, there would be the, you know, an engaging process where in a small group, you're talking about the content, you're reflecting on it, you're thinking through, um, and where you know that all of the other students have also done this preparation and they're also ready to, to learn and engage. Essentially, it might make sense to shift contact hours after the kind of initial exposure to the idea stage and closer towards the processing idea stage, because that's maybe where it's more useful to Absolutely. speak with other humans. Yeah, I think one of the concepts here is called like a flipped classroom, mm-hmm. where you do all of the learning beforehand. And then during the classroom, you're thinking and you're processing uh, and you're reflecting. And so ideally, you're not doing any quote unquote learning or like information acquisition, but you're uh, building that information. It's like a a knowledge building exercise where you're uh, thinking for yourself, really ensuring that you understand the the concepts um, and ensuring that uh, in the future, you are able to actually use those ideas that you've uh, developed in these classrooms uh, in your career or when you're solving problems in the future. Um, Whereas yet the (laughs) the lectures that we have now uh, do not really, like I would go to lectures and I'd be like, well, nothing has happened here. I've sat here for an hour and I've like taken notes, but I'm just like, all all that is happening is the sound is hitting my, my ears and then it's going straight to my fingers and I'm just typing it out. 
but I'm not thinking through what I'm what I'm writing. I'm just taking notes and I'm filling in gaps in a in some kind of PDF or something. Um, so then I was like, well, I can just get that PDF from someone the year above me. And yeah. so I would, I would just do that every single year. <laughs> At the end of the year, I'd be like, hey, uh, second year engineer, can you give me your second year engineering notes? I think there's there's a, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that uh, I find frustrating about teaching. Um, but yeah, I, 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 we 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 do not invest anywhere near enough resources into uh, how to support teachers uh, to learn and, how, and, and, and to ensure that people actually have good learning outcomes. Um, and we also don't train uh, professors or lecturers in how to teach either. So, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the variance that uh, I'm sure we've all experienced <laughs> in terms of like teaching quality is pretty huge, where sometimes you'll have a lecturer who's amazing. Yeah. And to be clear, like lecturers have a wildly difficult job on Absolutely. top of often, like a research workload. So yes. it's not like an effort thing. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the, the fault definitely does not lie with the professors. It's just like the entire system does not incentivize or really allow an engaging learning experience. The, I think the closest uh, that, that universities, at least in the UK, get to this is like the Oxbridge tutorial system mm-hmm. that I think is really good where you do a problem class uh, or like so you work through some problems by yourself and then every week you talk if you're like an undergraduate with like a PhD or something, PhD students uh, and maybe one or two other students about that thing. I think that mm-hmm. learning experience is awesome. But Cambridge and Oxford can do this because they have a huge amount of resources um, uh, uh, and, and can pay the PhD students, whatever, to, to, to provide this service. But most universities cannot. I guess also they're trying to, the, the, the courses are trying to teach everyone the same thing. So you're having to really be generic. You can't personalize the learning to each student because uh, you don't really have much information on the students all year. You, you get the information just only right at the end. And then you don't go back. You don't like give feedback on the exam performance. It's like all kinds of yeah. uh, crazy systems. Yeah. Like there's no personalization. There's no continuous feedback. This is a deep rabbit hole, but it is a fascinating one. So universities perform lots of functions altogether, yes. many of which have very little to do with con- effectively conveying information to people. Yeah. There is a bit of a question of why it's not easier just to unbundle all those functions and to like really optimize for and nail yeah. them individually. Um, but maybe one answer is like, well, we haven't really tried yet. And let's just like try, yeah. especially with the teaching people stuff. I, I guess there's something around the way that universities get students is often by claiming to be excellent research centers. And so there's, and, and one of the services that universities do provide is being a concentration of people who are really like, uh, uh, you know, excited and at the same like level as you are approximately in terms of like motivation to learn or whatever. Um, and so in terms of like networking between students, it's working quite well. And if you unbundle it, there is some risk that you then have, uh, you, 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 it, universities might become worse at uh, being able to like be known as this is the place mm-hmm. where people who are really intense in this way go or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, I do feel really excited about trying to unbundle this. And I, I do think it's surprising that this has not happened more. Um, I think the like some of the work on things like focused research organizations where uh uh, you're trying to support more foundational research uh, that usually only happens at universities um, uh, where you're providing people with the infrastructure to do open access research where everyone can see what you're doing, but you can have the freedom to be like, yeah, and I, th- this research is trying to solve this problem. Uh, you're not like mm-hmm. being incentivized by the citations or getting funding, yeah. which is also yeah, yeah, yeah. a rabbit hole of terror. Um, um, and then also b- b- building a separate inst- institutions that are focused on really effective learning. Um, one institution that I, I feel very inspired by and I've been learning about recently is, is Minerva University. Uh, I think they are, uh, uh, at least based on what I currently know in terms of uh, the research I've done on them, I uh, feel really excited about 
the way that they are approaching learning mm -hmm. uh, and the way that they are focused explicitly. Their mission is like uh, support these students at that university to be able to achieve their goals later in life. And it's like, yes, <laughs> that is the thing that I feel like universities should be providing for the students. Can you talk a bit about what does Minerva University do, do yes. differently? So um, they were set up, I think, around 2013 or 2014. And um, they uh, have a bunch of like really interesting quirks about them. So one is that um, they the, the students uh, travel around the world and they go to seven different cities for like four months at a time. And, and one of the um, thoughts here is that they, the university wants their students to have a global perspective and a global outlook. And so they really focus on, on increasing the uh, like international diversity between with the, within each cohort of students. And then they support them to travel around the world together. So they have like dorms in these different cities. Um, and then a part of the curriculum is uh, extracurricular activities that are like oriented for that, orientated around the, like the culture of that city or that country. Mm. Uh, so I think that's, that's really cool. Um, and then another part is that they are uh, much more focused on uh, developing like core skills that are going to be useful for students, regardless of where they end up going after they graduate. So, you know, things like uh, leadership, excellent communication, uh, understanding uh, when and how to innovate, you know, these types of like foundational things that are important for uh, uh, people, you know, pursuing ambitious careers after they graduate. Um, and then they've just incorporated you know, science of learning pedagogy into all of their structures. So all of the, uh, they, you know, uh, the, the, the concept of the flipped, flipped classroom is something I learned from Minerva from reading mm -hmm. their book. Um, so yeah, shout out to uh, <laughs> Building the Intentional University, um, which is a, a book by, by Minerva. Um, and yeah, so they do all the learning beforehand. And then in the sessions, they do this like information processing. So a lot of the, the like inspiration uh, and the things that I'm saying now are like both from my own experience of thinking, why is this not my experience? Like, this is what I feel like I should be doing. And then uh, reading about more about the science of learning and, and, and what they've been working on. It's like, ah, yes, they, they've, they've done the thing that, that seems like uh, should be built. And so this is inspiring now for me in terms of what do I want to build with Blue Dot Impact? We've talked a bunch about um, Blue Dot Impact and, you know, this specific community building kind of outreach effort. But I'd love to kind of get your, your takes on uh, community building uh, more broadly. So I think like, one way to build a bridge between these to two topics is I think one thing that distinguishes um, Blue Dot Impact's uh, work and also um, some of your previous work uh, with uh, the Kerry um, Summer Fellowships is that I think a lot of it gets aimed at trying to um, attract people and make people excited about specific cause areas rather than like you know, pitching things in terms of effective altruism or this like more meta, you know, look of like, you know, let's think about the most impactful things and, uh, you know, um, kind of work from first principles there. So I'm just curious with, yeah, like how you think about that in terms of community building strategy more, more broadly. Some of this is like path dependent and specific to my interests and motivation. I think a lot of my background is being focused on certain problems and then going through a process of learning about that problem, thinking about it, uh, trying to work on it, and then thinking, oh, I've learned this about this. I learned about some new problem, and I'm like, oh, this is an even bigger problem, and I want to work on this problem. And I have primarily been focused, personally at least, and motivated by thinking about concrete problems in the world and how can we solve them. Um, and I personally find this much more motivating uh, 
and in, like uh, inspires me more than abstract questions that I th- still think are incredibly important, but there are more like philosophy, philosophy oriented, uh, like, you know, how can we do the most good or uh, how uh, cost effective is this compared to this? Um, or, you know, how do we weigh up the lives of X versus Y? Uh, I think these are really important uh, questions and they are things that uh, have informed a lot of our work and a lot of my uh, the, the, my personal prioritization um, of different problems. Um, but I, I, I have always found the concrete things uh, are like better hooks for me to, to grab onto and, and, and make me feel more motivated. Um, I think a lot of people, other people have a similar experience, um, especially people uh, who you know come from a more engineering or like build things background. Uh, I think entrepreneurs are very similar to this, um, mm. where they're less interested in like abstract thought experiments and they're more like, what can I build? Uh, what can I do? Um, and they often want to do something that is like impactful and help solve important problems. Um, but the the orientation is first, how can I like solve something or build something uh, as opposed to zooming out right from the beginning of like what is going on in the world? So I think that's like some uh, personal background at least. Um, in practice, I think uh, all of these different approaches are important. Um, and I think it is really important for us to have, uh, uh, you know, the, the effective altruism movement promoting this, you know, cause neutral question or this like agnostic question about how can we do the most good? Uh, how can we solve important problems? What kind of world would be uh, good for future sentient beings, etc.? cetera? Um, uh, but I think I am like personally less uh, of a good fit to try and like work on that directly. Um, and I think a lot of other stakeholders within the effective altruism movement are doing this type of, 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 of thinking. Um, and a lot of, uh, you know, EA communities and, and local groups uh, are focused on these, like learning these principles and ideas. Uh, and I think that is awesome. I really want them, want them to continue doing this. Um, uh, but I think it's then also important to tie this to like, what does this imply? Or what might this imply? Um, or what are the different uh, type of uh, activities that one could do if they were to like live out these principles in practice? Mm. Um, and I think uh, having many of these types of uh, things in one's mind uh, really helps to concretize uh, these more philosophical ideas. Um, and uh, yeah, I think a lot of the philosophical ideas are not immediately action guiding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, there's, there's, a, there's a, a fairly large gap o- often between these things. And, and, and a lot of the things uh, to reflect on are just like actually insanely hard. Like, you know, solving morality seems pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, figuring out which moral belief is like the correct moral belief in all, in all decision scenarios. It's like, it doesn't seem, you know, obviously some people have like very specific beliefs about I think it is this, um, but it doesn't, definitely doesn't seem solved. Um, and so, uh, and I also I do feel uh, sympathetic to arguments that are along the lines of many of the types of problems that we face at the moment are uh, like from many, many different moral perspectives, we should prioritize them more than we are currently prioritizing them. And so um, I do feel concerned sometimes about running the risk of associating a certain idea or certain uh, solving a certain problem with a specific out there sounding philosophical belief. Um, yeah. uh, 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 that, that then uh, if this uh, causes some people who could do really important work to solve that problem to bounce away because they think, well, I don't have that philosophical belief or I don't I don't empirically believe that this is likely to take place in the next five, ten years, whatever. Um or I don't think this is how the world works. Um and so uh yeah, this has led me to want to be more concrete. Uh, and I think it's also related to the thing that we talked right at the start about uh leadership um and and coordination. It's much easier to yeah. uh lead and coordinate when you have an actual goal in mind. Um and 
uh, I think the the goal of like build this type of world where this problem is solved yeah. is more concrete and and uh, realizable than um, the still very important endeavor of uh, shaping the public's perception or ideology or thought process. Um, I, I yeah do very much want to emphasize. I think that line of work is insanely important, and like we definitely need like way way more work that is about inspiring the public uh, and uh, the, the you know people in general to uh, think about how to do do the most good, etc. Um, but I think it yeah I just think that there should be all of these types of things. Uh, it's more it's it it's less of a I think this is more important than this. It's more like I think all of these need to happen way more than they're currently yeah. happening. And I personally am like more focused on this like problem focused thing. Yeah, maybe one way of framing it is like how much low hanging fruit is there of people who are excited to work on cause X, regardless of like solving the moral problems that might motivate you to uh, work on cause X. I, I guess I'm I'm curious here, yeah, either based on on anecdotes or um, on any data and surveys you ran of like how many participants of the fundamental curriculums are people who have engaged with effective altruism or these moral things before, and how many people then go on uh, to engage with effective altruism afterwards, as opposed to um, yeah, as, as you kind of like framed it there, are just like interested in solving alternative proteins or uh, solving biosecurity or what have you. Yeah, I don't think we have excellent data on this at the moment. So uh, these are like hypotheses that we'll want to be testing once we have uh, more ongoing systems in place. Uh, we have found that within our um, AI safety programs, uh, we do have a much higher proportion of, of people who are engaged with effective altruism. Uh, uh, in contrast to the alternative proteins program, which has uh, a, a much lower uh, percentage of engagement. I think it was, uh, I'm not certain these numbers are correct, but it was something like with the um, AGI safety fundamentals, it was like 80% of participants had engaged quite a lot with effective altruism already. Mm. Uh, and then for the alternative alternative proteins program, it was something like 20 or 30%. Oh, right. So it's wow. quite a significant difference, if I recall correctly. Um, and uh, we have not, uh, I don't think we have like good enough data at the moment to be able to analyze uh how are the like long-term outcomes of people uh, different for these different uh, groups? Uh, so we're currently still very much like mm. speculating. Um, I, I do think there is something about when people engage with effective altruism and these ideas, the like amount that people are uh, likely to take more responsibility to solve the problems increases. Yeah. Uh, I've personally found this a lot with the EA community building work that we had in Cambridge, where when someone really engages with these questions and thinks, oh, wow, yes, Doing the most good is actually really important, and and this is like something that I should take responsibility for. Um, does unlock people to uh, do things that they didn't think previously that they would ever be in in inclined to do. I think one thing myself is that um, I have always felt the like need to solve problems and like uh, from so, so I, like the effective altruism like unlocking thing uh, wasn't like a a thing that happened to me necessarily, but I have seen it in many, many other people. And so I, th I think this component is still very important. Um, but yeah, yet to see exactly what this implies for like uh, the percentage of people who do our programs who uh, go on to like, you know, uh, solve these problems and yeah, like yeah. how effective altruism as like an idea and as a community uh, affects the, the outcomes. Okay, so there are benefits to um, framing particular problems under this broader rubric of, look, we're trying to figure out how to do the most good, and this seems like a really plausible yes. <laughs> candidate to work with. But I wonder if sometimes that's actually not so necessary, or at least maybe there are costs involved. So let's pick a concrete example. Let's go for uh, AI, or technical alignment work. Mm. 
And so this does in fact just seem like a wildly big problem. Mm -hmm. And by the lights of this kind of broad yeah. EA endeavor, just looks important to welcome for, for that reason. Uh, but also it's like a bundle of technical questions, which I can imagine getting just like really motivated by and interested in uh, independently of these kind of broad reasons to focus on it. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, I can imagine like being a kind of technically minded let's say, like, a uh, student who just wants to, like, chip away at some of these, like, big problems mm. and maybe kind of reacts like a... or maybe kind of bounces off or gets weirded out by mm. um, this, like, wrapper of the EA community, which they're potentially new to. Mm. So, um, <laughs> promises ramble will end soon. Curious if you have thoughts on more kind of just like autonomous problem focused groups where it's like this group we're going to discuss this like set of questions in technical alignments and it's not going to have this like kind of overlap with this broader community we're just like laser focused on these these problems yeah i think a few, a few considerations here so one is around how well defined is the work that needs to take place to solve this problem and is this something that can be evaluated beforehand or is it something where people need to like continuously iterate with time uh, in order to like actually do the thing that is most impactful um, and then I think there's something around the pathway of people engaging with the problem first and then getting involved with the effective altruism community versus the effective altruism community first and then the problem I think there's like multiple different people will have different approaches there uh, maybe I'll get to the uh, first part uh, now so I think for something like alignment research, where the problem is much less well-defined, where the problem is like philosophical in nature almost, mm -hmm. uh, or like many parts of the problem are philosophical in nature, um, and uh, where it is you know, very plausible that the type of research that we think is helping to solve uh, you know, alignment of very powerful machine learning systems in the future is just very, very different to what we think now, and where we would want people over time to update in the direction of the thing that mm -hmm. is most impactful. Um, I think in those scenarios, I think having the goal is really important. Um, I think uh, Will McCaskill talked about this in, in What We Are The Future with the uh, charity that, or the, like the foundation that was helping Scottish Londoners. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, where, you know, the, the, they were given the objective and not the goal. Um, sorry, they were given the, like, the, the specific thing to do instead of the like yeah. actual thing that they cared about. I guess one analogy here is, you're in a forest. You want to know like how to get to the nearest city. Yeah. One thing you could do is like have someone point you in a direction to like try to remember that direction. Yes. Uh, but it's a kind of dark forest, and maybe you'll just like veer from the direction. Mm -hmm. Another thing you can do is have a compass and get someone to point you the compass direction. And then you have this kind of like course correction mechanism, which seems quite important. Yeah, I think I think this is definitely true. I think there's like a spectrum here of of, of options where, on the one hand, uh, you're giving you know the the very high level goal of like do the most good. And that is like <laughs> the most abstract, but also the like most close to being correct goal or something. And then there's the you know opposite spectrum, which is as you mentioned, the like just give the direction. Uh, and maybe here it's like you know solve this mathematical problem or build this specific technology. But there are many things in between. Um, there are you know goals like uh, create a pandemic-proof world, mm. um, where you know there's a lot of reasons to believe that this would be close to like doing the most good if we believe that pandemics are like a huge risk that, that we're very concerned about. Or, you know, make sure that we are, that when we develop transformative artificial intelligence, uh, it does not go and do crazy stuff in the world. That like it, it does things that are beneficial to humanity. Um, and this is not necessarily the same goal as 
do the most good. Um, uh, and some people, in my experience, are much more favorable towards this uh, still, you know, not super action guiding goal mm. of like solve this problem. Um, but they find this much more motivating than the like yeah. EA-centric goal of do the most good. Yeah. Um, and then there are other people who do want much more of the like work on this specific thing as the m- motivation. Um, and uh, I think there is, uh, and, and uh, you know, there's different audiences for all these different uh, different like types of framings. And I think we should just we should experiment with many, many more of them. Basically, mm-hmm. I think uh, when when it's presented as a dichotomy of you can either present the highest level goal of do the most good, or you can tell someone what to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, you're missing out most of the thing that I think is actually important, which is somewhere in the middle. Um, and uh, as, as an example of this in in Cambridge, um, we are now experimenting experimenting with. Um, an AI safety group. Uh, uh, so that, uh, a community is being formed in Cambridge that is focused primarily on artificial intelligence. And there are many people who are engaging with this community that are not also engaging with the effective altruism and long-termism community. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the um, a lot of the norms around epistemics and uh, ideas and resources are coming from the effective altruism community. So some people are, who are motivated by this goal of making sure artificial intelligence, uh, you know, the development of these technologies goes well for the world. Um, are then later on engaging with the effective altruism community, but they were primarily interested in the AI thing. Um, and others are really motivated to make sure AI goes well, but they're pretty suspicious of the whole EA community thing. They think it's a bit weird. Um, and uh, in as much as they are still really trying to solve this problem and they have uh, reasonable reasons to be uh, wanting to distance themselves from specific uh, communities, then I still feel really excited for, for them to be doing this work. So I think that there's a, an element here of experimentation and, and trying different goals, different framings. And also, again, I would emphasize, you know, we should be doing more of all of these things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- there's, there's like marginal thinking in EA that I think we can like push too far where we're like, well, we're like really resource constrained and therefore we just need to like find the specific thing. And, and I, I really don't dislike the framing of like, we need to do one, we need to find the specific thing that is the most good. Yeah. And I much prefer the idea of like, what is the portfolio of work that is required? What is the, the world that we are all working towards? Mm. Uh, and I think this is a much more effective way to engage many, many more people in a productive way to actually help create that world. Um, whereas, the, yeah, I think the marginal thinking aspect is much more coming from the perspective of, of an individual or a small yeah. community that is like, wow, it's us against the world. I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a bit more. You mentioned that, um, you know, different messages or different approaches might attract different audiences. If you can speak a bit more as to like what these different audiences are that might respond differently to these messages. So for example, you you previously alluded and there's like obviously painting everything in very broad strokes, but that uh, engineers might be like more motivated around like this is a problem uh, to fix than, you know, you know, let's say maybe philosophers who might be more interested in these like big moral questions as using that as the starting point. Um, I know there's also, you know, discussion about um, messages that might be more receptive towards students versus people who are like later on in their careers already have some um, like kinds of expertise. But yeah, curious for you to just um, talk a bit more about um, how you can see this more cause area specific approach helping to um, uh, help fix or mitigate like very specific talent gaps in EA that you see at the moment. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll initially dig into the um, question around people who are later in their career. Um, I think it is interesting to reflect on the fact that it seemed like a very large percentage percentage of people who are getting into the effective altruism community are getting in through universities. Um, I'm not entirely certain what the most recent numbers are, but you know most of the community building efforts um, are taking place at universities uh, in terms of like in-person things. 
Um, and uh, there is then this this leads to a tendency to uh, you know deprioritize the type of messaging or the type of um, uh, projects that are better at supporting and leveraging the expertise and, and knowledge and relationships that people who are later on in their career have. Um, and uh, I think it is uh, likely that many people who are later on in, the, in their career um, uh, will, uh, by nature of their circumstances, find it harder to make a huge pivot with their career. Mm-hmm. Um, partially, this makes a lot of sense because they will, ha- you know, often will have very deep expertise in a certain topic or certain area uh, that might be relevant. Uh, if, you, if you've been uh, working for the um, CDC for 20 years, uh, the Center for Disease Control in, in the US, uh, then it does make a lot less sense for you to be thinking about, uh, you know, how to do the most good in an abstract sense. I, I think it's still important to, to, to ask this question, but um, uh, their expertise is much more clearly aligned with uh, you know, preventing infectious disease and, and, and pandemics, um, and so the the goal of uh, uh, you know h- how can they contribute to making a pandemic free world, mm. um, I think will be much more captivating th- to them than the like a- and more action guiding because it's like clearer what to do. I think this also just happens by default a lot. Um, I find that uh, you know in in Cambridge we have many biosecurity, uh, many um, synthetic biology PhD students, yeah, and. You know, they all gravitate towards biosecurity, and the 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 the, the things that they say is, is often the same. It's like, well, I'm doing biology, and I got involved with EA, and it's like, well, if I'm doing biology, then I should do biosecurity. Mm. And so, um, uh, people often just jump to the the like sub goal very quickly anyway. Mm. Um, I think that is often a, a mistake that people should be thinking and, and spending much more time reflecting on many different problems, um, right, yeah. uh, especially if you are early on in your career and it's easier to pivot. Um, uh, so I think we're like kind of making a mistake on both ends where for people who are early in their career can develop different skills, uh, can pivot quite a lot. Uh, they're not tied to any specific location or line of work or skill sets. Um, I think they will jump to the problem immediately yeah. because like EA says so or something like this. Yeah. I think that is like almost always a mistake. Like EA is like not one thing like that. There's just like, yeah, I, I really want more people to be thinking about, you know, all of the different problems and, and how to solve them. Um, but then I also think, there is this second thing where people are being, uh, where we are also developing more intentional sub goals um, and, and 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 thinking how can we leverage that um, yeah. uh, and 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 not tying it super closely to this uh, other like project in the world of how can we do the most good. Yeah, and presumably even if you're working on a uh, specific cause areas, if I'm kind of understanding you right, there are like still a lot of like ethical and moral questions that you will like need to like grapple with. So to take your like, uh, you know, 20 years experience at the CDC example, there presumably still is, you know, it's really important to think about, you know, when I'm trying to prevent pandemics, like how can I do that in the best way? And like, how does that involve, you know, trading off, um, for example, um, mitigating the very worst types of pandemics, right? Your global catastrophic biological risks versus uh, COVID-sized pandemics versus epidemics versus, you know, lives in the US and lives like more globally. There's a whole, you know, bunch of like moral questions there. Um, but there's also like a whole bunch of like moral questions outside of that that EA grapples with, right? From, um, you know, waiting animal to like human lives. That maybe isn't as necessary um, to, uh, you know, be spending, you know, the fixed time or the fixed uh, attention and, um, you know, resources that, um, you know, even individuals have in, in all of these cases. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with this. I think, um, uh, yeah, we will often talk within the like EA community about cause prioritization. 
uh, and it usually is between is like between causes. What, what what is the most important? It's like very vague question of how important is this versus this, or like what is the x risk from this thing versus this other thing. Um, which I think in practice of like fairly fluffy discussions um, with like in very very uh, high levels of uncertainty associated with them. Um, but we do seem to talk much less about the sub goals or like the prioritization within a topic. Um, uh, I think this this happens uh, uh, somewhat. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, for uh, pandemic prevention, you know, there is more focus on uh, engineered pandemics uh, as a result of, uh, you know, concerns about uh, uh, potential set yeah, yeah. of pathogens being released that could kill everyone. This is like particularly scary scenario. Um, but then the question of how do we, you know, given we've like already narrowed it down a little bit from just like pandemics broadly to maybe a specific uh, collection of scenarios that seem really scary. Um but then what does this imply in terms of what to prioritize then? There's, there's many, many, many layers of, of prioritization. Um, and I think uh, it is very easy to uh, fall into the uh, trap of thinking, okay, I've just like done my initial prioritization of, you know, I've got involved with EA. I then like think that this thing is really important and I'm a good, I, I'm a good fit and I'm just going to do something on this topic. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think it is really important to continue to prioritize. Um, and, and there is, you know, in, in all that I'm saying at the moment, there is always a tension between how specific can you be um, versus how can you try and create a culture of prioritizing? Um, so yeah, this is I'm definitely not something we've like solved internally either. We're thinking through for our programs, how can we both uh, inspire people to, uh, you know, p- pursue specific goals and, and uh, in terms of like, you know, prevent pandemics um, and also introduce different potential solutions um, that we might want to s- encourage them to do, but also uh, create a culture where you know, the answers to any, all of these questions are not actually set at all. And it will require a lot of their thinking to think through, okay, how can I do this? Uh, or which which of these to choose? And then when I've chosen one, how can I do it most effectively, etc. Um So, uh, yeah, I think there's just like a huge amount of nuance here that tends to get lost. Um, and, and that I've found that many people who are new to EA do not seem to like internalize the level of, the, the amount of prioritization that is required. Um, um, but yeah. Obvious trade-offs here across the board. Yeah. Since we're talking about Doe's uh, EA meta hot takes, mm. I had a kind of related question. So, in kind of community building jargon, there's this idea of the uh, of a funnel um, for um, people learning about effective altruism and becoming more involved in that community. And the idea is that there is a kind of wide top of the funnel. We are reaching out to many people, exposing them maybe for the first time to a set of ideas. And then as you move through the funnel, um, people are kind of ratcheting up their interest and commitment. Maybe they're actually rolling their sleeves up and getting involved in projects and so on. Um, and I wanted to ask about the middle of the funnel. And this is something like, so maybe I'm an undergrad. I've done my like, you know, fundamentals course on some some topic. And now I'm like, okay, what do I do next? Like, where can I go? Um, yeah, I'm kind of, I have some sense that you might have takes about um, whether this kind of, this part of the funnel is relatively neglected and what we can do about it. The funnel analogy is very useful. And I think it is often uh, used to, uh, like, pe- pe- people seem to, it is often discussed in the context of like, oh, there is one funnel and we just need mm. to get people to the bottom of the funnel. And I actually think there are just like lots of funnels if, if you <laughs> want to use the funnel analogy. There's like, um, uh, you know, that there is the uh, funnel that people talk about within EA community building that is around uh, 
uh, inspiring people to think really hard about how they could do the most good and to uh, you know develop a set of tools that will allow them to prioritize between different problems or evaluate different problems and solutions. Um, and then there's you know an element of this that is around engaging with the wider network of people trying to do this around the world and to join this you know global project of, of how can we uh, do the most good and, and solve these problems. Um, I think this is like one funnel, which is like the EA funnel, so to speak. And I also don't think it's one funnel. It's actually like probably a bunch of different funnels because mm. EA is not one thing. It's like actually just it's, it's, it's so many different things. Um, um, but there are also many other funnels for different problems. Um, so there's, you know, I would say there's probably like an AI safety funnel or something or like a um, an animal welfare funnel. And there's intersections between these, all these different things. Um, um, yeah, so that's like some some in initial thoughts. And then specifically on the like middle of the funnel per se. Um, yeah, I guess this area is like pretty huge in as much as the top of the funnel is thought to be you know, some kind of like large scale, low bandwidth outreach or something. Maybe like, um, uh, you know, videos or books or podcast episodes or uh, other things like this. There's like lots of things that are involved here. Um, and then the bottom of the funnel is like, oh, someone is now like, solving this problem. They're working on it with their career. They're, they're doing the thing, whatever the thing is. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I guess the, yeah, one of my intuitions is that, um, and, and, and disagreements with, with um, uh, uh, some other people is that um, I do not agree that one should only do the top of the funnel thing. And then the, the people who would have the most impact will just figure out their way to get to the bottom. Uh, I, I, I find this line of reasoning fairly suspicious. Um, um, and I, I, there's like various arguments that people have presented around, uh, yeah, but the, the people who are like have the greatest potential to solve these problems will figure it out themselves. And, and I'm like, ah, that does not seem right to me. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, and, and, and this is where I think for, for me, the question of, of, of leadership comes in around supporting people who are now motivated. You know, they've, they've learned the stuff um, around uh, they, they've they've heard about these arguments. They think, yeah, this is really compelling. I actually do want to end factory farming, or I do want to, you know, prevent the next pandemic, or or, or I really do want to do the most good. Um, uh, and then there is a leadership component of uh, being like, yes, you, you know, let's work together, let's do it. Um, and I uh, worry that a lot of the arguments around not wanting to do the middle of the funnel thing is uh, uh, really because it is hard because that is a leadership thing. Um, where right. it's like, I am now going to support people. I'm going to like make a decision around setting a long-term vision, like concrete vision. I'm going to like make a claim and then I'm going to try and bring people with me mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to achieve that. And I think a lot of like, quote unquote, middle of the funnel activities uh, involve this kind of activity. So, so just to understand when you say, you know, you need to make a claim or something, is that as in you need to kind of direct people as to where you think the end of the funnel or the bottom of the funnel is, um, rather than, as you maybe alluded to before, if like people are what, like working it out themselves or something, they will themselves define where the bottom of the funnel is? I believe that in order to solve these problems, uh, we need a lot of people to coordinate with each other uh, and uh, uh, to work together on specific projects. Um, I do not believe that merely uh, convincing people that these problems are important mm. leads to the world that we want. We are making claims about 
what resources are the most important or what type of problems need to be solved. Um, and we are making claims around trying to direct people in specific directions, be it specific skills to develop or specific organizations that we think are doing important work or specific companies that need to be started that are not currently ex in, in existence. Um, and uh, a lot of people want that kind of support. Um, I think uh, my, my, my understanding from 80,000 hours is that many people uh, uh, look to 80,000 hours for this kind of support, but they do not see it necessarily as their role. Mm. Um, and so people are always like, you know, wanting them to be more specific about what they should do personally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, this is not how we see our role in this ecosystem. Um, mm. And I think this is like entirely fair from 80,000 hours perspective that this is not, you know, what their organization is trying to do. But I do not think this implies that nobody should be trying to do this. Right. Maybe one underlying assumption that I'm kind of like inferring from you here as well is maybe a question as to like just how many people do you need to solve a problem like entering factory farming or preventing pandemics or aligning AI. And if you have a um, worldview that maybe, you know, all you need is a hundred, a thousand or like some, you know, sizable but still like pretty small in the like scale of things. Um, you know, group of like highly engaged people to like solve this, then maybe the like middle of the funnel question here, like isn't, you know, as um, cruxy because, you know, the few people who will like find it um, or like self-select and, uh, you know, figure out the end will, will, will be it. But if you like really think, no, like these fields need to actually like increase like 10x and, you know, it's not just like thousands of people we maybe need, but like ultimately a hundred thousand people or millions or whatever on like who we like ultimately like rely on to like solve these problems, then um, making the funnel um, a lot bigger and that like requiring a lot more, you know, guidance and coordination on like getting people through to at the end of the day, like actionable uh, tasks or organizations or institutions and infrastructure, then that like type of coordination and leadership, as you put it, seems to be like a lot more important. But as I, yeah, like maybe inferring here, seems to rely on like, no, like we just need like so, so much more. Yes. We can reflect on the, on the past few decades for, you know, case studies on, on this in terms of various communities that have been formed to try to end various problems and like how successful have they been? They've been, uh, various efforts to end factory farming and improve animal welfare for, for many, many decades mm. um, and, and to like promote animal advocacy and things. There, there have been people working on uh, pandemic preparedness in some forms or another in, uh, to, to different levels of, of, of focus for, for very, very long. Um, and we don't seem to be very close to, to, to solving these problems. Yeah. Um, and it seems like many of these problems are not, you know, they're not... Uh, of the form, we just need this specific thing, mm. uh, and the problem will be solved. So, you know, for for, for biosecurity, we can't just have uh, uh, metagenomic sequencing taking place around the world, and then suddenly pandemics are solved. Like this, um, uh, you know, will help with detecting novel pathogens early on in an outbreak, um, but then this requires some kind of policy response. It requires some kind of buy-in to a certain uh, um, uh, intervention that takes place afterwards. Um, and that requires a different line of work to this initial, like developing this specific technology. Um, and I think many of these problems have this form of, uh, in order that like problems are very complex and and, uh, and and messy, and the solutions are also, I believe, at the moment, um, uh, of a similar form. And I think we we can have a tendency, and I have felt this tendency in the past to think right, yeah. this specific thing will solve it all. Like for me, it was uh, cultivated meat for alternative proteins. I was like, if we just make this product then, you know, factory farming will be over uh, because suddenly we'll have this uh, this um, uh, meat in shops, which is cellularly, cellularly identical to, to, to 
yeah. you know, a steak or whatever. And, and obviously people will buy this um, and it will obviously get cheaper um, or something. Uh, whereas in reality, I, I think it is, it is not at all this, this simple. Um, mm. It is not clear that people will move to this new product um, because it is like exactly the same. There's, there's all kinds of other efforts. And it's also not clear that this product will actually work. There is some probability, potentially quite a high probability, that this specific intervention doesn't pay off. And in a world where we've only got a small group of people who are like trying to do one specific thing because we think that is the most important thing, we run the risk of like, actually, that thing doesn't help the problem. Yeah. And boom, we've lost 10 years or 20 years where we could have, you know, had a portfolio of people doing many things that uh, yeah. hopefully all of the things are, you know, robustly positive. They're not, uh, you know, avoiding various uh, risks of making the problem worse, etc. This is all uh, still an important thing. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I feel uh, concerned about... Uh, arguments that are of the form uh, we can solve these problems as some small group of people who like, yeah. have some special knowledge. This always, always I'm not sure how much, uh, I, I haven't evaluated like history of these types of arguments or communities that have made these claims, but it, it generally seems like fairly suspicious to me that yeah. when, when people make these claims. Yeah, I was thinking maybe I should try saying this back to make sure I'm yeah. getting it. So I wonder if there's two things going on here which overlap. One is a question of uh, gaps in building the community of people solving important problems right now. Yeah. Another thing is thinking ahead to what does it, a world look like where we are really making headway on these problems mm. at scale. Mm. And on the first point, so maybe the thought here is, okay, imagine, you know, a world before phones exist. You have some sort of like, why phone should exist course that people go on. Yeah. And at the end, it's like, okay, you presumably you're now convinced that phone should exist. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. And they're like, hang on, who, who do I join? Like, what, what are kind of agendas or programs exist right now? And there might be a few like real visionaries who are like, great, I'm going to start something or like, join, you know, form some small group of like real forward thinkers. But there's going to be a ton of people who are like really keen to plug themselves in to some like existing initiative mm. that is led by you know um a like a particular kind of concrete vision that's maybe not the entire thing it's like a particular component of this grand um problem mm. and it involves some like takes and some guesses and some conjectures but like we're just going to try this um and as long as that doesn't exist, you're going to like not get the phones as fast. So that's okay. That's the like building the community now side. And the analogy carries over to maybe it'd be it would be nice to have something like more concrete agendas that just like stake out a guess on like, how do we make a bit of progress on this problem? Yeah. Um, and then it sounds like we can also look ahead to what does you know? What does the world look like when we're just nailing this? Yeah. And maybe it involves like very many people working on these problems. And when we think about the marginal person there, it seems pretty unfair to expect that person to find their way to this kind of work by like starting at the very beginning and like going through their own journey or reflecting on what's the most like important thing to do with their life. Um, or at least that doesn't seem necessary at all. Um, and so like maybe for those marginal people, like we just need these structures where it's just like much easier to get involved and like you don't need this kind of um, more conventional introduction. Does that sound right? <laughs> no, that definitely sounds right to me. I think, uh, and yeah, I think it's worth me pointing out that there are already many elements of this taking place. Yeah. Uh, this is, I am not pointing at like this huge thing that we should be doing is just like not happening at all. There, there are many organizations that are uh, being started uh, that are saying, you know, this is my 
uh, a belief about how this part of the problem uh, uh, might take place. And this is my belief about how to solve that. And, and I'm now building an organization to do this. Um, mm. um, and I think this is awesome. Like, I, I feel really excited for people to, you know, st- stand up and be like, right, I'm going to build a thing. and I'm going to try and do it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we need more of, you know, these types of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial people um, who are, you know, willing to try and set up these types of projects and organizations. Um, but then zooming out, I think there's also a like community uh, 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 um, situation here of thinking about the like total strategy of the problem and, and making sh- and like, uh, you know, who is trying to set up these different, like in- empowering people to set up these different projects um, such that people can thrive within these different organizations. Um, and yeah, all, all of the things are happening. Uh, my primary argument is that I think these types of activities should be taking place much more mm-hmm. um, and that more people should uh, feel empowered to uh, be like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to like really think hard about this specific thing and I'm going to do something. Um, and then for the community to support them to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and appreciating this is like quite a risky thing to do. Um, also appreciating there is there are risks of like lock-in from like one person has like mm-hmm. uh, cordoned off a part of the problem to themselves and they've made it really hard for other people. So there are all kinds of community dynamics that that, um, that doing this at a much larger scale uh, can create. Um, and yeah, doing this like uh, blindly without intention could could cause many more problems than than, than would be solved. Um, uh, but I do think uh, if it is the case that solving these problems requires just many, many more orders of magnitude of people, um, then we're just very far at the moment yeah. from from achieving this. But yeah, I I think a lot of this like yeah like really resonates, especially the point that I think you made earlier that I would also be really surprised if the kind of special source or something about effective altruism is that people are more effective, more capable, just smarter than the world as a whole, and that lets us fix these problems. I do think that there is something to the fact that the world doesn't tend to optimize for altruism or for doing good, and that might leave some low-hanging fruit that even conditional on having the same capabilities and the same you know, smartness as the rest of the world, you can just like do a lot of good um, because there just is uh, like a lot of low-hanging fruit around. But when it comes to really changing really big, really structural things about the world, ending factory farming, uh, preventing pandemics, aligning artificial intelligence, I'm like also, I think, just very skeptical that a small group of people will be able to do it. I do think that there is something to the fact that like even within like a really big ecosystem or, um, um, you know, a really like big force or community um, that there will be like points of like exceptional leverage and it's like worth thinking hard about this. But I think also to the point that you made of like looking uh, examples in the past and examples in history, I think that like really speaks to a lot. This is like a little bit of a, a teaser, but in hopefully two weeks time, I'll be speaking to Greg Namet about like what went right with solar PV. And I think one of the like lessons there is this was, you know, really a like slog over 120 years. And, you know, over that time, there were like some periods that like really helped create step changes. And, you know, you can think strategically through and be like, oh, okay, if Germany passes this like subsidy, then that will be like really, really good. Or if, um, you know, some like Japanese commercial companies like take this like big investment on, uh, you know, commercial applications, then that will also be really good. But I think a lot of it is just underpinned by like messiness and unpredictability. And it's not the fact that you can just like plan this all um, from the onset and requires a lot of like very different people and groups coordinating across each other and uh, coordinating like over time and stuff. I think it's, yeah, like a really, really tricky problem. 
Yes. Yeah, I think one one uh, reflection I have here as well with uh, the nature of the effective altruism movement is that uh, the by by virtue of asking the question of like how how can I do the most good, mm. it tends to nudge you towards trying to find the best answer, um, and this tends to cause uh, I believe people to be much more risk averse with pursuing a path that requires lots of messiness because there is a desire to have the correct answer right. at the start. Yeah. And then it's just, you, just, you just do the thing that this correct answer implies. Um, whereas in reality, there is a huge amount of messiness. You know, the people, I mean, if you, if you look at startups, very rarely does a startup uh, come up with an initial idea and then right. like, they, they yeah. get it right they, you know, down the line. Um, uh, that you know that there is almost always a huge amount of iteration and pivots and uh, reevaluating the strategy, realizing that their core competency is different for something is valuable for something else. Um, and I think the a, 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 one concern I have with uh, the the approach that um, uh, the effective altruism community can sometimes nudge people is to be spending a lot of time in this like planning phase mm. and less time in the messiness. Uh, of, of like interfacing with the real world, doing things in practice, mm-hmm. uh, seeing like which of your hypotheses turn out to be correct uh, or which of your hypotheses were correct in an abstract sense. But actually, there are many, many uh, reasons about the messiness of the real world that means this does, that isn't really relevant, actually, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that you only get when you put the thing in practice and see if it works or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this idea of uh, phase one and phase two work yes. in EA or long-term SDA, where phase one work is something like, thinking about what is most important in general and planning in very general terms about what we should do about those things. Uh, and phase two work is something like doing those things or at least uh, making a start on, you know, for instance, building things, implementing things, running tests and so on yeah. um, with a view to scaling them if they go well. Yeah. And yeah, maybe one consideration here is that um, phase two work isn't only useful if you're certain about what exactly we should be doing now, uh, in fact, it also gives you information about that because you can run tests and update on them. It also has something like community building benefits because it's really damn cool to see people actually doing things yeah. in the world and kind of inspiring as well as just talking about them. Yes. Um, so maybe, yeah, there's a case for shifting, particularly in this kind of long-term SDA context, to doing scary, messy things in the world. Yes. When I say scary, messy things, good, scary, messy things. <laughs> <laughs> things that are not making the problem worse, but giving you information <laughs> on kind of scary. Yeah. whether your hypotheses about the problem are correct uh, yeah. and, and, and the solutions are correct. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with this. Um, uh, I also think uh, just uh, the phase one, phase two um, like concept I came across from uh, Owen Cotton Barrett's EA Forum post mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that he argues in this post is that we should also have phase 1.5 uh, mm. work, uh, which maybe uh, <laughs> nudges towards like, uh, 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 yeah, maybe, maybe we need slightly uh, different concepts about this. But um, uh, in terms of phase 1.5 being the like strategy work around how do we actually solve this problem? Mm. And then phase two work being the implementation of this. But then phase work is something like super like, it's like, it, it, I, I guess it's something about the like, process of, of figuring out what to do is like, you know, an iterative, iterative, iterative step from the like moral philosophy of like, how do we do the most good to in practice, this implies this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the like phase two is like all the way on the like in practice, we need to do this. Yeah. Phase one is like the moral philosophy stuff. And then the 1.5 is like something in the middle, at least my understanding of, of Owen's forum post. Maybe it's worth me throwing out some examples to make sure I'm getting this Go right. So, yeah. so phase one might be something like, well, we're in, we're in Oxford right now. It's people sitting in front of whiteboards 
doing bow text on what areas seem most important. And you know, this happened a few years ago, and uh, people appreciated that uh, biosecurity seemed like a huge deal. And now, lots of people are working on it. Great. Uh, phase two work is maybe something like uh, Alvea, who have just gone and developed a vaccine, and now they're like running tests, and they just like have made something. Yes. Um, phase one point five work is maybe something like a focused research organization or something like thinking very particularly about like okay how might we actually develop a technology like sequencing and what would that mean for like funding and stuff where you're like you've zoomed in on a particular technology you're not doing philosophy anymore yeah. uh, but maybe you haven't like rolled up your sleeves and started like 3d printing things yet <laughs> yes yeah i think yeah i think this is my also my understanding and uh, i also think of the like phase 1.5 thing as uh both theorizing more abstractly about a specific technology, but also thinking about uh, what is the portfolio of different technologies that we need and how can we uh, develop systems that ensures that all of them are built. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's like uh, we've, we've already decided we want a specific, uh, solve a specific problem. And now it's like, how do we create this world uh, where this problem is solved? Um, and, you know, how can we inspire the creation of more uh, startups or companies and yeah, I would again say that they're the, like leadership components of, of setting the vision uh, and, and ensuring that like all of the balls are not being dropped. Um, yeah, I think this isn't just like very hard to do in practice, which I, is one of the reasons I think why uh, it is not being done. But I, I think uh, if I imagine a world where, you know, the effective altruism project um, or uh, it is successful or where we solve any of these problems, it seems really plausible to me that we need this type of work. Yeah. Um, and it seems really hard to me to see how, uh, you know, just convincing people that problems are important leads to a significantly better world in the future. Because mm -hmm. yeah. it seems like uh, convincing people that the problems are important most of the time does not lead to people actually doing things mm -hmm. where they are now taking responsibility for solving a part of that problem. Um, uh, it seems like this is actually a very rare character trait of a person going from, uh, uh, yeah, I'm actually convinced that this is really important to I'm going to work on it. So then I'm going to work on like a really important part of it, um, especially this final bit. Like there are people who think a problem is important. They'll do something. Um, uh, but I think that's, all, that's also really rare. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, we want, we want to scale up the number of people working on really important parts of the problem. This requires figuring out in the messiness of what those are and then realizing our, our hypotheses, even in phase 1.5 work, will probably be wrong. And like, the only way we figure this out is by people doing the phase two work and then feeding that information back to the strategy and being like, yeah, actually that didn't work. And again, this is, this is definitely happening. There's like, I'm not claiming that this is not happening at all, but it seems like this process of uh, making hypotheses, getting uh, experimenting, getting feedback is like a slow iterative process. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we just need a lot more of it. Yeah, I think the, the, the more that we can try, the uh closer we can try to track how like this activity led to this specific thing and and then uh thinking through uh future hypothetical scenarios where uh because of this technology in these hypothetical scenarios or because of this regulation or whatever mm -hmm. in these hypothetical scenarios we will be better off and we think that this hypothetical scenario is quite likely um because of these other things uh and trying to then create the like win uh from that um but yeah i i definitely don't have you know, very well-informed thoughts on how to yeah. do this in practice. I think this is just really hard. I, I definitely also don't have uh, very well-informed thoughts about this as well, but I think I take the point on risk mitigation, but I think there is also this finer point on like, when you're thinking about risk mitigation, um, 
what level or like like what width of the distribution do you ultimately care about? Because I think all the problems that come with risk mitigation as a whole and legible wins kind of get amplified if you only look at the very extreme um, of the tails. And I think, or I'm I'm curious about um, whether the points about attracting talent, learning about the real world, engaging with the real world uh, and the like um, should nudge you towards not just caring about um, the far right tail, um, even if that is where all the expected value is. Um, but in process of trying to develop tools against that, it actually kind of forces you to engage with the rest of the distribution as well. Yeah, this seems very, very plausible to me. I, I imagine there's nuance here with every specific risk yeah. that you're concerned about. Um, uh, and, you know, whether uh, should you be trying to ensure that, nucle- uh, that Russia does not use a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine in order to prevent, you know, a, a nuclear winter potentially in the future? And, like, does that learning then translate to pre- preventing pe- uh, nation states from uh, using uh, strategic nuclear weapons, etc.? Um, uh, I imagine this is very different, you know, a, a different question and a different uh, uh, thing that we would need to assess in terms of its usefulness relative to does preventing zoonotic pandemics uh, also help with pre- uh, you know preventing bioterrorists from uh, developing 10 super scary pathogens etc yeah. um it does seem very plausible to me that in all of these cases we should be trying to come up with uh interventions that are useful today that we think will also provide us with learning for uh what will be useful down the line when we have more certainty over uh, what are the specific things we're trying to achieve. Um, and the more feedback we can get in this way, the, the better. But yeah. uh, I do definitely appreciate it. it is very hard to do this in practice. And it's very easy also to, uh, in the process of doing the thing where you can get good feedback, you know, lose sight on the actual thing you're most concerned right. about. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, um, or just, you know, uh, communication issues of uh, it seeming that actually the thing we care about is the smaller thing, where actually th- the thing we really care about is the big thing. Mm-hmm. But in order to do the big thing, in order to understand how to solve the big thing, we're doing this like smaller thing. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I think this will uh, likely continue to be a, a challenge. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really good answer. And I really appreciate the um, like contextual uh, importance as well when it comes to like cause by cause. I think mm-hmm. you're completely right that it looks very different if you think about nuclear risk or if you think about pandemics or if you think about climate change or what have you, I think the like question of where on the distribution do you focus on is is different. Yeah. Okay. So a while ago, you mentioned uh, leadership as a skill set that we might do well to value more. Mm. Um, for instance, because it's really useful to come up with a plan and uh, that makes it easier for other people to just get on board and like build these kind of concrete, um, more kind of object level projects in the world. Yeah. Um, but I guess the question I have is to what extent is this kind of leadership? Well, first of all, what, what are we talking about when we talk about this skill set? And then how might someone go about actually acquiring it? Yeah. I think leadership is a fairly fascinating concept in as much as, uh, it seems like everyone has a sense of what it means, and then you ask them for a definition, and it's about there's there's many, many, many different definitions, um, and yeah. So, so some of the things that I think when, when I think of like what is leadership, um, uh, some some of the like concrete examples are the ability to uh, bring many disparate people together and uh, inspire them to be excited about. A goal or work with them to develop a new goal um, and then to empower them to feel like yes I can actually do something uh, to, to, to work towards achieving this goal um, 
and then creating the type of organization, the culture, um, the team where people are working together uh, and uh, taking advantage of each other's skills and, and expertise uh, in order to make this thing happen. Um, and uh, there are yeah many, many, many different uh, skill sets involved in this, both in terms of uh, strategic, strategic thinking, in terms of you know developing this uh, vision for what you want to achieve, and then having a roadmap that seems actually plausible and implementable in your mind for how to achieve it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know uh, the 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 best examples of this are where you think something is achievable that nobody else thinks is achievable, right. um, and that you have some you know key insights that other people don't have about uh, whether something can be done or not. Uh, and then being able to you know find the people who can actually help you achieve that goal, and then empower them to th to think, yes, actually, I think this is totally impossible, but you've convinced me that this is possible, um, uh, is, is, is one element. Um, and then there's the, the other elements around, uh, you know, managing people, supporting people, uh, uh, creating a, a, a culture where people feel supported, etc. Um, um, but yeah, it is definitely like a fairly fluffy concept. I think a lot of my... Uh, like inspiration for taking this seriously comes from uh, experiences I had during university as a part of the uh, UK Royal Air Force uh, University Air Squadron. Mm -hmm. So I was a part of this for three years as a as an officer cadet. So uh, once a week would go to uh, uh, this like RAF building to uh, talk about the military and leadership, um, and uh, really really realised how powerful this was as a, as a thing, and also realised that I did not have this skill set at all. At the time, there were like specific things that um, uh, uh, I thought I was fairly good at in terms of uh, maybe like public speaking or things from when I was uh, uh, doing a lot of acting as a as a teenager. But um, there were so many other skills, like the mass, vast majority of them that I did not have. Um, but yeah, slowly came to realize, wow, this is a really important thing. And like when I meet someone who I think, wow, this person is a great leader, that often like. Is amazing. Like you know, it's like wow, this person. I just want to. I just want to work with this person. I want to. I want to. I want to help this person achieve their goal, and it's not even their goal anymore. It's also my goal. Mm. They've like they've they've made me feel ownership of this goal, and I want to like work with them and and the team to make this thing happen. Even though it's really hard. Even though it'll require figuring things out. It'll require failure. It'll require iteration. Um, uh, so yeah, there, there's many messy elements here, um, but I think you know most people will know leadership when they see it. Mm. They know good leadership. They know bad leadership. Um, and uh, I think, you know, good leadership, incredibly, incredibly important. And uh, I guess my take here with the effective altruism movement is I don't think uh, we have that much leadership. Um, partially, this is intentional because mm. we are, you know, uh, in some ways, effective altruism is an idea. It's a question. Uh, it is not a, you know, mega corporation. And this is like really good. It would be really concerning in some ways if it was like this. Um, but I think we would benefit from uh, empowering more people to develop this skill set, empowering more people to, um, uh, uh, you know, stand up and be like, I'm going to solve this thing. Uh, not necessarily being a leader over effective altruism, but a leader in as much as that is required to help uh, make progress on a specific part of a specific problem. Mm. So 
how would you concretely go about cultivating this skill then? I can imagine, you know, listening to this and being like, yeah, I, you know, should be more of a leader. I should take more uh, ownership of things. But that can seem, you know, very daunting and also like very abstract in terms of, you know, what should I actually go about uh, improving? So curious also here for your own personal experiences mm -hmm. in terms of um, cultivating this skill. It sounds that, as you mentioned, um, you know, at the RAF, you were like somewhat aware that you like didn't have it. And mm -hmm. I like to think that you, you now think that you have it more than you did back then. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, curious what uh, changed in between. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm still very much like on this journey. I, I think I am like 100% uh, nowhere near the like type of leader that I want to be. I expect I will you know, continue hopefully to develop this uh, skill set um, as I uh, get through my, my career. I'm still very early in my career. Um, but some of the things that I've, I've uh, done in practice. So uh, one of them was, um, yeah, I guess first step, realizing this is important, internalizing that this is important. Um, second was then starting to explore different literature that exists on this topic. So mm -hmm. there's many, many books that have been written on leadership. Uh, there are many books that are, are memoirs written by great leaders uh, that, that where you can uh, use them as a case study. Do you have any examples of these books? Uh, one memoir that I think is, uh, that I've recently read is uh, Steve Jobs mm -hmm. uh, by Walter Isaacson, uh, which is a memoir about Steve Jobs, uh, not written by Steve Jobs, but about, about Steve Jobs. I guess like Steve Jobs also being one of the <laughs> more controversial leaders or something here as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Steve Jobs' book by Walter Isaacson is an example of, uh, you know, he was a person who had very, very large ambitions, uh, believed that Apple and Pixar could do things that nobody else believed they could do. And he was able to uh, get the team to achieve those goals. Uh, uh, now then, it is also an interesting example of um, bad leadership. Uh, in as much as he was fairly fairly tyrannical in the way that he led his team, uh, he you know had very little consideration for the well being of his team members, and this also often led to worse outcomes uh, than than positive outcomes. Um, but I think it's 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 uh, and there's another uh, really great book on this called Radical Candor, which explains the different types of of leadership uh, mm -hmm. uh, and the different types of leadership that works. Like tyrannical leadership can work. Uh, but a more compassionate leadership can also work, um, and there's like a different culture that you would want to set here. Anyway, so those, yeah, those are some 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 books. I think there are. I'd, I'd be happy to link uh, a bunch of books later in the in the okay. show notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, have, I, have, I have a whole notion page with like lots and lots of books and oh, podcasts wow. and things. Awesome. So awesome. that I often send to send to people who uh, ask for for resources on this. Um, but yeah, so the, what, one process was uh, trying to engage more with the literature, mm -hmm. um, uh, both books, uh, podcasts. I did this like online course. Um, over the summer of 2019, uh, which is like an IMBA module on strategic leadership and management uh, on, on Coursera. Um, and, uh, but I think that's only like one component. Mm -hmm. um, I think an equally important compo component is putting yourself in a leadership position mm. uh, and like practicing the skill set. Um, and so, you know, the, the way that I did this at university was uh, by... Um, well, first of all, you know, trying to set up these different uh, groups. So the, the Toasty Bar is one example of, mm -hmm. I, did, I didn't do it intentionally to get leadership skills, but it served as a useful case study in my mind of bad mm -hmm. leadership for myself. Um, and then uh, also, uh, yeah, led a bunch of different student groups from like the Gliding Society to uh, the Effective Altruism group, um, also uh, an acapella group. And by, by doing this, I uh, was constantly, uh, you know, reading literature on this topic and then while consuming the literature, like actively processing, what does this imply for my current situation? Or if I had done this in this way, or like if I had known this uh, process, 
what might I have done differently in the past to lead to better outcomes? Because there were many, many examples where I just miserably failed um, while while being a leader of these different groups. And, and even in my current role, there are there are many, many large mistakes that I think I've made that are primarily leadership mistakes that I continue to make. Um, and that, uh, yeah, is just a process of slowly getting better um, yeah. and, and, and acknowledging or realizing, ah, yes, I'm bad at this thing. Uh, so, for example, at the moment, I think I'm bad at coaching. I think the, the coaching components of, of leadership and management is not something that comes naturally to me, again, because I'm quite inwards focused. And so now I'm reading a book on coaching um, and thinking, okay, what does this imply for how I lead my team currently? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I basically think there is like, you know, there's the acknowledgement that this is important thing. If you want to be a leader, I, I think most people should think more uh, about leadership and like even if you want to be a good follower, I think it's important to know about leadership as well. Um, but then it is, you know, learn, apply, learn, apply, or learn, apply, reflect, iterate, review, learn, etc. And it's, you know, again, similar to what I was mentioning earlier with like solving these problems, uh, you know, on a much smaller scale, it is a, an ongoing process of slowly getting better. Mm-hmm. And I guess in many contexts, there will be existing leadership positions, mm-hmm. which you can proactively put yourself yes. forward for if you make this decision that you want to um, develop this skill set and kind of push your comfort zone. But I suppose there are also contexts where you can just make the position, like you can just choose to start something. And like often good leadership is a service to other people, which other people appreciate. Like maybe a tiny example is maybe I could just, you know, start a reading group and just like coordinate the thing and like help push people to do it. Um, and, you know, both of those things are, are, are options. Absolutely. Yeah. Strongly. Um, also, what's the story with the toasty bar? Oh, yes. Um, um, oh, this is funny. Um, so uh, when I was in my first year in college, I studied at uh, St. Chad's College in, in Durham University. Mm-hmm. Beautiful college. Big, big fun. Uh, if you're applying to Durham, apply to St. Chad's College. Uh, listeners, that would be my suggestion. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, and, and a friend of mine said, Dewey, I think we should make a toasty bar. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So a toasty bar is, uh, imagine a, a sandwich shop where you get sandwiches, but they're t- they're like they're grilled or cooked or like toasted. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like hot, slightly burnt toast uh, bread. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, so but you, you, but the, uh, uh, an easy analogy is just we'll like, add it's a, a small cafe show notes. <laughs> yes, uh, just a, a, a small cafe selling sandwiches. Basically, I, I'm um, learning uh, on the internet that in America they call a toasty a grilled cheese. So that's whoa. for our international <laughs> listeners. Amazing grilled grilled cheese bar. Uh, my friend suggested. Um, Maybe we should have a toasty bar in this college, and I was like, "Yep, that is a great idea. Let's let's work together to to make that happen." I approached the senior management in the college and asked them, "You know, can we set up a toasty bar?" And they were like, "No." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, why?" Uh, and they were like, "Cause you'll burn the whole place down. Uh, you will. Uh, it'll be bad for the environment because uh, you'll create a bunch of waste, and you'll poison a bunch of students with uh, with like uh, gone off food." I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. So then I uh, cycled to the local fire station um, <laughs> and, uh, and and got in touch with the fire officer for my college and uh, invited him to the college to do a survey of the fire safety in the college, including my proposed uh, toasty bar. He uh, came to the college and found that there were a bunch of fire hazards in the college that were nothing to do with my toasty bar. But the toasty bar was totally fine. Wow, I so, bet your college loved that. They, they loved it. They were <laughs> best friends with me. Um, so, um, I had, uh, yep, the, the, the fire hazard concern was therefore uh, um, uh, obsolete. And then uh, I uh, got a train to Newcastle and 
uh, did a food safety course uh, with the, the Newcastle County Council we're running for a whole day. Um, and then I became my college's environmental rep and uh, started <laughs> trying to improve the recycling system in my college. Um, and uh, at the end of this, uh, it was very hard for the college to uh, continue to say no to me <laughs> about the toasting bar. Um, and so then uh, two of my friends, uh, we walked to co-op and we just bought a bunch of ingredients, came back to college, started just cooking them. Um, and then I uh, convinced uh, about eight of my friends to be chefs. And the payments was that they would get toasties whenever they wanted. So anytime the toasty bar was open, which it was four nights a week, uh, they would get toasties for free, uh, even if they were not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I couldn't pay them any money because I wanted to give all the money to charity. Uh, so it's a charity toasty bar. Um, but their uh, compensation was free toasties. And then for uh, I need, also needed someone to you know take the money and the orders and give these to the chefs. And so we had front of houses. These were usually first years um, uh, who uh, enjoyed the like socializing components and they were paid in free toasties during their shift was their payment because this was a lower, less of a commitment. Um, and yeah, so so we uh, built this little cafe, um, uh, a toasty bar, and uh, then it uh, caused some controversy because uh, a year in, I... Uh, uh, like during the time that I set up the toasty bar uh, with with my friend um, was the time where I went vegetarian. Um, but we start, we were selling uh-huh. meat initially, and so for a whole like nine months or so, we were selling meat even though I was a vegetarian and some of the chefs were also vegetarian. And I felt really bad about this. It really like mm-hmm. hurt my soul. And so uh, I did a bad thing and uh, secretly swapped out the meat <laughs> for corn meat <laughs> and didn't tell anyone. Um, and, 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 and this caused a bit of uh, drama. So that, that was silly, uh, really. Did, so did people notice or what happened? Uh, after a week, one of the chefs who was, uh, uh, they, they, the chefs were responsible for also uh, getting the food. So a part of their role was going to the shop to get the food. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and then figuring out how much stock to buy, how much stock the next chef should also buy. So they would go to the, to get the food before, um, the shift. And one of the chefs, um, uh, was not happy with this change and therefore, uh, snitched, uh, or betrayed, betrayed my, uh, my, my, my poor toasty bar and, uh, told people that, uh, that we were secretly selling them <laughs> corn, <laughs> corn chicken and corn ham instead yeah. of real chicken. Um, and so then there was a, uh, a, 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 a large, uh, uh, JCR meeting, junior college room meetings for all, all the undergraduates in my college. There were about 300 people. Um, in one of our, uh, like quarterly meetings with the whole college, uh, the, effectively the entire meeting was just, uh, talking about, uh, the toasty bar and, and whether it should be vegetarian or not. Um, and, uh, we were trying to, beca- uh, make it institutionalized because at, at the moment I was like trying to set up a company, but using all of the college resources, including the like, uh, space in the college and all of the students. Um, and I was like, and they, they, the college management were like, you're not allowed to set up a private company here. You've got to, it's got to be a part of the college. <laughs> the college. And I was like, okay, fair. So we we're trying to institutionalize it, but also institutionalizing it as a vegetarian toasty bar. Right. Um, and so we had a, a huge, like 300 person debate. Um, uh, <laughs> and I, I had all kinds of uh, crazy speeches that became a meme about uh, Patagonian donkeys. Um, because I, I gave this story about when I first realized that people would turn a blind eye to animal suffering mm. was uh, when I was... Uh, in uh, Argentina with a, a choir when I was 18 and we were in this ranch. Anyway, there's a whole, there's a whole story there. Yeah. Basically, these horses were being uh, uh, mistreated and that was like, I gave this speech about this experience of, of how I, why I like was vegetarian um, and that became a bit of a meme. But anyway. Mm. There's a, there's yeah. a Welsh diaspora in Patagonia, right? Yes, yes. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> I think it was like 1865 or something. There was a boat called the Mimosa that went from somewhere in Wales to uh, Patagonia. I think it was like 
uh, the, the, the history might be wrong here, but it was something like Baptists in Wales were being um, uh, like persecuted by the English government. And so they uh, wanted to escape. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, they set up a, a community in, in, in Patagonia, in Argentina, and, and also a little bit in Chile. And yeah, they're, they're, they're still going. Uh, they're, they're not like hugely Welsh speaking anymore. There, there are like still a few thousand Welsh speakers there. Um, but uh, yeah, they still have lots of Welsh cultural traditions. It's pretty fascinating. There's some kind of like, yeah, like uh, meat eater problem question here, right? At the heart of this toasty debate as well. Because if you, you know, say donated, or if the charity that you would like donating to was an animal uh, like rights charity, does the like marginal increase in donation like sales offset mm, the fact that saying. people are eating meat versus corn? I think it's an empirical question. Very, very interestingly, the the second big college wide debate we had about the toasty bar was about this. Uh, okay. So, so I initially we we, we won the first debate uh, and got the toasty bar institutionalized as a vegetarian toasty bar. Three months later. Uh, economist uh, uh, <laughs> had the argument that we should be uh, uh, using some of the profits to offset ca- the carbon dioxide emissions yeah. and also to donate to a pig sanctuary uh, to offset the animal welfare concerns. And uh, at the time, I didn't know anything about philosophy. I think I was still like, I was about 19 at the time. And uh, I uh, presented this, uh, like, I, I, I guess I, at this point, I know this is like a fairly classic, like utilitarian critique yeah. um, of, of like how obscene this argument was. It was something like, my, my friend uh, is a serial killer, but he, he wants to like offset this by donating to Oxfam or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and made this type of argument. Didn't know anything about EA or philosophy or anything at this point. Um, and um, yeah, the, 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 sadly, the economist did not win. And uh, <laughs> we did not start, we, we kept it vegetarian, didn't offset. But I think that I like more and more reflect on Actually, that there is more substance to that argument than I appreciated at the time, um, uh, but it is yeah the tension of uh, uh, like I, I think actually in reality a lot of the impact of the toasty bar does not come from it being vegetarian. It oh, sorry the like people eating vegetarian food instead of not, but it's the it's the symbolism for the members of the college being like this is a vegetarian toasty bar. Why is it a vegetarian toasty bar? It's because X Y Z, um, and you don't get that symbolism via the offsetting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think the. The impact of the toasty bar, if if it has any impact, will like maybe come from the donations, but uh, we were not very strategic th- with those. Um, uh, or it will come from the yeah symbolism and the role it plays in the discourse in the college, right. and and whether then students go on to become vegetarian or vegan themselves, which I think will have much larger impact in terms of their impact. But then also if people go on to pursue careers in animal advocacy or alternative proteins, that has significantly more impact as well. Oh. Does the toasty bar still exist? I believe so. Um, uh, uh, I've not been to Durham uh, for for over two years now, so I'm I'm not certain. But um, I I hope it does. Uh, and if any if any uh, listeners <laughs> are at my college in Durham, uh, please do uh, send me an email with how things are going. I'd love to hear. Yeah. The bleeped out college. The bleeped out college. <laughs> you'll, you'll know which one it is. Uh, if, if you're at that college, you'll, you'll know. And then maybe to follow up, like concretely, how did you find that? Yeah, community building and the work that you're doing now. Um, yeah, would would be the thing that you want to sort of focus on. Yes. So um, it was not originally the thing I wanted to focus on. Um, and even like many months into the job, it was not what I wanted to focus on. Um, so my original plan, uh, I, I was I was torn between becoming a, a China specialist and a uh, and then like an alternative protein researcher at the time, around like 2018. And I was like, yeah, probably I'll I'll, uh, I'll, if I want to be a China specialist, I need to like travel the world and, and learn lots of languages, spend time living in China. Um, and, and then maybe I'll become like a diplomat and focus on emerging technology mm-hmm. governance globally or something like this. And then, um, uh, so I had this plan to travel around the world. Um, and then COVID happened. So, uh, I had to reevaluate 
and came across the effective altruism Cambridge job uh, recommended to me um, uh, by Hugh Thomas, uh, who was uh, helping me with some career planning. Um, and um, I was like, ah, oh, this seems like a, a cool job. You know, I haven't really met many EAs before, uh, but uh, I'm like really excited about this community, this like idea, this framework, this question. Um, and this will be a, a, an awesome opportunity to talk to more people, learn more about these problems, um, get more involved in this space. Uh, and then, yeah, started uh, in October 2020 in Cambridge. Uh, and yeah, just uh, continued continued go, going from there um, and uh, found that I really enjoyed it. Um, oh, I was also at one point planning to set up a YouTube channel uh, on uh, climate change mitigation. <laughs> and, so that was a, even like, I remember we, I did a career planning uh, workshop while working for EA Cambridge uh, about four months in. And <laughs> looking back at this, this is like early 2021. One of my like top career plans was still like climate change YouTube channel, <laughs> um, which uh, is, is funny to reflect on because yeah, I'm very far at this point from prioritizing that um, uh, for many different reasons. Um, <laughs> A long way but, since uh, the bond. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, um, it is... Uh, it's been a, a, a very messy process of just like yeah. trying lots of different things, being bad at many many things, uh, learning, uh, just like continuing to go to continue to try things. Um, yeah, there's there's it might like f sound like there's some kind of arc or something, but there is not. It's just like yeah. chaos throughout. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, then maybe not to ask too existential a question, but like, how are you thinking about your own career? Kind of looking forward, at least on the like, you know two to five year um, scale something. I guess like maybe to contextualize this question somewhat, I think one um, thing I hear from uh, EA community building uh, circles is, you know, the question of like, can you make this into a like long-term attractive career path? And also curious with, yeah, like your um, thinking around that. Yeah, I think there's there's a weird thing here where the like term effective altruism community building kind of is it, trying to mean many, many different things. Mm. And uh, it's trying to represent many different type, types of activities. So a lot of these careers are very normal sounding in the outside world, be it, uh, you know, doing recruiting or doing, um, uh, you know, producing content online or um, uh, um, running educational programs or, you know, being a teacher. Mm. And, and all of these things within EA somehow have been mushed together to mean community building. I think this makes it hard for people to uh, think about the question of what does it mean to pursue a career long term in this space. Um, now I see my role and my the like organization that I'm uh, co-founding um, to be focused on uh, partially on strategy for for how can we uh, you know uh, solve these problems on on a large scale. Uh, at least I, I aspire for it to to include this. Um, definitely doesn't uh, as much at the moment. Um, uh, also. There's an education component, a like you know, similar to universities, similar to high schools, yeah. etc., or Coursera, uh, or all of these different platforms. Um, and there's also the uh, you know recruiting components of it. So I see my my role now as some combination of strategy, education, uh, uh, recruiting, and leadership. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, this feels I, I'm like super excited uh, about 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 this as a as a career path. Um, and uh, I think there's yeah really really large opportunities for personal development, uh, for uh, me developing new skills, for uh, and the, for the upside of the organisation to be very very high. I think we could be potentially doing really cool things. Is the hope? Um, there's also a chance that it all fails and goes on fire, and like 
that is a part of the business. Like if you're trying something new, it's not clear if it'll work. You know, maybe in a year's time, we're all like, ah, it didn't work. We'll, we'll go do something else. And, and that's also totally fine. Um, um, but yeah, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the journey of um, focusing on, you know, how can we inspire and support many, many more people to use their careers to do a really hard thing to solve these problems uh, is something I personally feel very uh, motivated and, and captivated by. Mm. Um, uh, there is a, like, I guess this, uh, uh, another part of your question is like, what does this imply for other people who are yeah, yeah. interested in EA community building as a, as a career? Um, uh, and I think the, this relates to like the whole discussion in some way around like, uh, what does it mean? What, what, like, what, what is, what is the like goal here? What, what are the, what is the actual thing you're trying to achieve? And like, what role does that, um, that job or that, uh, type of activity play in achieving the thing that you want to achieve? Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there is something about, uh, there is no clear long-term vision for what EA community building careers should be. Mm. And so it's very hard for people to feel motivated and to coordinate to achieve this thing because it's not clear what that thing is. Um, but I think if you break it down into different things, into different types of, of careers or roles, uh, and then try and uh, concretize what you're trying to achieve, um, I think then it can become really compelling. And, and there's like very obvious uh, analogies to other industries uh, that you can draw on and learn from. Um, uh, and, and then it becomes, yeah, just like much more normal sounding, uh, uh, you know, telling your friends I'm a community builder doesn't really sound very cool, I think. And it's like not really very descriptive either. I, I think it's just like not, uh, I, I'm, I, I've tried to think of better terms and like, I think it's better just like be more specific instead of trying to replace it wholesale. Yeah. Could you give an example either of like the analogy here to, uh, a different like industry or sector or, you know, what, what you would like describe yourself as being, if not, um, yeah, like community building. Yeah. Um, so maybe two uh, analogies, maybe just in like recruiting. So uh, one of them might be uh, a related analogies. So uh, many companies have, you know, internal recruiters mm. um, and their role is to find, you know, great people around the world who have the skills or motivation uh, to help further that organization's mission mm. and then to uh, convince them to join. Um, and there are also roles where, uh, you know, for example, many consulting companies or finance companies will go to universities and will uh, uh, create a, an aura of amazingness yeah. around their organization with all the students. So all the students then are like, wow, that company is amazing. Uh, I've applied to that company. I've gotten into and blah, blah, blah. And it's like yeah. created that sense of hype. Um, these, these are like very standard things that exist in the world. Um, and, you know, it's called recruiting <laughs> uh, or like campus recruitment or like internal recruitment or whatever. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of uh, EA community building activities can look a lot like this. Um, but then the way it's, it's framed doesn't have the like same aura of, of coolness around it. Yeah. Um, but you could, for example, go and work at an organization that you think is really doing impactful work and you could be a recruiter. Uh, and a part of that might be, you know, going around uh, universities and, uh, you know, giving talks about the that organization or the problem that that organization is, is trying to solve. Mm. Or it could be uh, more broadly just, you know, uh, searching the world, searching LinkedIn and other places for talented people. Um, and I would argue this is like a similar thing. Of course, recruitment is not the entire thing at all uh, of like yeah. what we mean when we say community building. Well, I was yeah, um, going to say, because it does sound that like a lot of the work that you're doing seems more analogous to educating or creating, you know, these like online resources, um, what have you, than it does is like, you know, concretely like trying to pitch X person for Y job. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think... Uh, 
yeah, it is easy to like describe the thing that I'm doing as like community building, mm. but then I don't think this communicates much information to the person who is being told this. Um, uh, whereas, yeah, being more specific about the like, yeah, running educational programs where people develop relationships with each other and then are hopefully inspired and supported to uh, work at specific organizations or do specific things. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit more wordy, but I think it like communicates a significantly more information. Yeah. Um, and I think the one, one thing I would encourage people who are c uh, considering careers in the space is to be more specific about what are the uh, what parts of the like talent strategy uh, is 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 not being uh, uh, like fulfilled, or what important um, activities do you think? Uh, what what type of projects or activities do you think could support uh, more people? to do important work in some context and then, uh, you know, flesh that idea out to find like, what are the analogies to doing similar things? Mm. Um, you know, if you're running an inter internship, pro internship program, there might be like internship coordinator or something, you know, uh, yeah. and, and just like being more specific about that. And then, then it becomes much more concrete and clear what you are trying to do. Um, and there's just like definitely careers doing this. Um, or if you're running conferences, there's like loads of careers in running events. Um, uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's just like lots and lots of opportunities here, but it does just require being more specific and being more intentional about uh, how does the thing that you're doing, uh, you know, inspire and support more people to do something that uh, you think is important. And you know, in the analogy of the funnel, where are you on the funnel, et cetera, or which funnel are you on? And I guess this goes back to thinking about things going really well at scale. Presumably that does not look like everyone who could be describable as a community builder, like running around and trying to do everything and just calling themselves a kind of a community builder. It involves people doing like specific intentional jobs that often look like jobs that, which already exist for reasons, yeah. good reasons. Yes. <laughs> a, I guess, yeah, like yeah, to maybe draw like a different analogy here. It's not like every you know person who does research describes themselves as a researcher. They would describe themselves as working on X or trying to solve Y, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's a, 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 another point here around... Uh, if you're more specific, it is then easier to develop more specific expertise for doing that really well, mm. and also to build an organization that can do this at a much larger scale than you can achieve by yourself. Yeah. One concern I have with a lot of uh, uh, like 2022 EA community building projects, it, it it is a lot of people running around doing random stuff. Mm. Um, it's like if, if we want if we want to succeed in the long term, we need organizations, we need institutions, we need uh, you know actual expertise, and a lot of the impact of an organization will come. Way down the line in in its uh, in its uh, you know the life cycle of that organization, um, but if we're just running around doing random things all the time, then we don't get to building these organizations. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So maybe in that spirit, then I'm curious if you've got any yeah thoughts or suggestions on areas where you would like to see uh, more good work on. And I yeah want to emphasize as well that this is not just you know work that you have planned for yourself, but also um, yeah if you could. Uh, give advice to somebody who, um, yeah, is thinking about doing community building or trying to get one of these like specific problems that they want to solve. Like any uh, suggestions for what they should uh, have in mind? Yeah, it's it's interesting to reflect on. Uh, I, there's something about the like this form of question that I find very interesting. So a lot of people at conferences will ask this question of like, what should I do? Mm. Um, and I always find it very hard in some ways to answer this because. Uh, in, in some sense, I there is like, uh, in my mind, there is like a model of like, these are all of the different technologies that we want to develop, all the different projects that we want. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, uh, 
interesting to be like, okay, if someone asks this question, should I just like choose from this list? Yeah. Of like, you should do this one. Um, uh, uh, or are there like more procedural things that feel, uh, I, I, I often feel more inclined to like suggest a procedural thing mm-hmm. um, of the, uh, or, like, as opposed to do this very specific thing. Yeah. Um, at least like when in like a low context situation, like I'd be wary of, Listeners being like, all right, we're all, all going to jump on this like specific suggestion. Yeah. Seems like a, uh, 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 not like a uh, an outcome that would be like desirable. Um, so I think more like zooming out of like, what would I recommend for people in general? Um, one obvious takeaway from from this podcast would be, you know, to think more about leadership uh, as a skill set to develop. To develop. Um, I think another is uh, given where we're at in terms of the amount of research that has taken place in terms of how do we solve these problems. Um, uh, it does just, it continues to seem incredibly important to have more people really thinking hard about how do we solve the whole problem in as much as that is like a plausible question to answer, or even like, what is the problem? Mm. Um, and uh, to uh, uh, be uh, brave enough in some ways to try to do this, because it is like a ridiculously hard question. In some ways, it's an impossible question to answer. And like, almost certainly whatever your answer is will be wrong in a bunch of ways. And so it's like quite scary to even propose an answer. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really important that we have more people thinking uh, on, on that on that level. Um, and then to, from this like process to try and uh, infer what should one do, or like then be like, All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, stake my claim about like what I'm going to try and do. And I'm going to try and build a team uh, or going to try and like do really great research in this space or uh, uh, something in this vein. Um, uh, so that's 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 one thing, and then um, another would be something like um, a lot of the skills one can develop are uh, things that you can develop in a normal organization uh, or in like an uh, uh, you know fast-paced industry that it is not quote unquote an EA job, mm-hmm. and so I would I feel inclined to encourage people to not feel like uh, impact equals get EA job. <laughs> feels very, very wrong to me as a, as a framing. But I, I, I have come across many people who um, uh, have this uh, belief that this is what impact means. Because of where we're at at the moment in terms of level of coordination and strategy, um, we do just need more people to be thinking more about what is the actual problem and like what skills to develop and, and really you know digging into actually learning about these different things. In some ways, this is our programs are trying to provide people with support to do this process. You know, we're not necessarily telling them do this uh, because we don't know what this is, um, but we're trying to provide accountability and support for them to learn about the different topics, to develop relationships with other people such that they are then better placed to be able to uh, make a decision to evaluate the different options and, and do something. Um, so I would, yeah, encourage this uh, process of deliberation uh, around like what, what, what do you think a world where this problem is solved looks like? Um, or what type of thing do you think is important? What skill do you think is likely to be very useful for this type of problem? And then find a, a career where you can develop that skill. And it doesn't necessarily need to be an EA job, uh, uh, whatever an EA job means, but uh, it's a phrase that is often used. I, I, I definitely appreciate there are like many, many like uh, trade-offs and like conflicting thoughts here uh, around the like requirement for strategy and requirement for leadership and people needing more support, but also uh, this doesn't exist currently and therefore people need to think more for themselves. Um, uh, and yeah, it, it does feel quite messy and, and giving generic career advice is it's often really hard. And so this is like one of the things that I'm hoping that our programs provide is much more targeted career advice um, uh, where 
there is more context and there is more like understanding in that relationship between uh, the uh, advisor or person supporting and the person uh, who's then doing the thing. That's a great answer. Uh, so another question we ask everyone is, can you recommend three things which listeners might go and read or listen to? Yes. Um, so one book that I think is just really, really excellent for thinking about building world-class organizations uh, and building an organization that um, is able to achieve uh, goals that one would not think uh, is possible uh, is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Um, this is a book where they tracked over many decades the uh, uh, which companies uh, had something crazy like 6x stock market returns consistently, uh, whereas previously they had not had that. So like uh, up to a certain point, they were doing something fairly standard, uh, just like a normal performing company. They did some something different. They started, uh, they changed their practices, and then they had these huge returns. Um, and uh, evaluating what were these changes in practices. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just think it's a really, really great book. Um, so that is one. Um, then uh, there's a short article by Aaron Swartz um, on theory of change, uh, which I just really love. It was written like early 2000s sometime. Uh, I think if you uh, Google it, it comes up. Um, uh, let's see. And then this is Aaron Swartz of Reddit. Uh, yes. Okay. Cool. Aaron Swartz uh, uh, wrote this article, um, and I think it's just really, really uh, compelling. Uh, like very short introduction to the idea of thinking through how does the action that you are taking place actually lead to a change in the world that you want to see, and thinking you know the thinking this through the whole way. Um, and yeah, I, I think most people still do not do this within effective altruism anywhere near enough. And for me, this feels like one of the core things is like thinking this through. Um, and and I, I think we would uh, benefit from more people taking this seriously. Um, uh, and then a third thing uh, is uh, an album I really enjoy right. um, by an artist called Laura Mvule. Uh, and the album is called Sing to the Moon. Uh, and there is a specific song that I absolutely love um, called Father, Father. Uh, we sang this in... Uh, my a cappella group at Durham, um, and oh, it is absolutely beautiful. The um, yeah, the, you please please do uh, check it out. <laughs> but I I think it is just absolutely beautiful. Wonderful, and we will most certainly link to that and the other two things you mentioned. Amazing, thank you. Um, super. And then final question is just where can people find you and also find Blue Dot Impact? Mm. So uh, I am uh, online at dewierwan dot com. Um, uh, spelled D-E-W-I-E-R-W-A-N.com. Um, and then blue.impact is at blue.impact.org. And the first dot is spelled D-O-T. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> good clarification. Great. Uh, Dewey Owen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you both. That was Dewey Owen on building and scaling impact-driven projects. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Erwin. That's spelled E-R-W-A-N. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you know of any other cool resources on these topics that others might find useful too, then please send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, then email us or click a link on the website uh, where we have an anonymous form under each episode. And lastly, if you want to support the show and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can do so by leaving us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, uh, Justin Potrebel, for editing these episodes. And thanks very much to you for listening.